What up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. John, we did not have to delay the show one day because of G1 and all of the news. We're on time, Wednesday night, 10 o'clock, ready to rock. Let's do it. All right. I mean, not like we don't have a ton of stuff to talk about. And uh, right before uh, right before you hear the Raw review, that the 1993 Raw show that we'll, that we'll talk about, I interviewed uh, a buddy... Uh, who is in the toy uh, figure business, and uh, his name is Chris DiPetrolo. I, I I think I got his last name right. I, I tried to like put a Hispanic slant on it when I was talking to him. I was like, "Is it DiPetrio?" Like, nope. Don't 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 put the Spanish pronunciation on my last name. Uh, but he and I had a conversation. Uh, he is uh, in the toy figure business, and you know, if, if anybody has ever collected a wrestling figure or a Star Wars figure or a GI Joe figure, I think you will find the conversation that I had with Chris to be pretty interesting. He's a hardcore collector. He is in the business because he loved. Uh, just toys and figures as a kid and it's kind of like a dream thing for him and I think that will come through in the interview so I'll put uh, we'll, we'll play that right before our 93 raw review so what that means is you know the interviews 25 30 minutes long so you and I are gonna have to pick it up a little bit so we don't we don't uh, break the record for longest fight game podcast show ever um, and so let's actually kick it off with news or information that came out late last week which is uh, Mark Ramondi, who used to work for MMA Fighting and now works for ESPN. He is now doing a lot of wrestling coverage for ESPN, which is actually really cool. And uh, he did an interview with one CM Punk. And CM Punk, in the interview, I feel, I don't know if you, if you read it or if you, you heard the kind of the, the news bits that came out of it, I feel like he completely big-timed AEW, and I think strategically big-time AEW. He is a he's the biggest free agent currently in wrestling. He is the one guy who uh, is kind of out there and who both companies probably are very interested in signing. And Punk, I think, is playing the waiting game. Now, he's always got WWE in his back pocket. He's got to swallow a lot of stuff in order to go back to WWE, integrity uh, being uh, one of the big ones. But he's always got that in his back pocket. And if Vince McMahon was offering, you know, Dean Ambrose $3 million to come back or whatever the number was, like Punk's probably worth double. So he's got that. But then there's this AEW that we've been talking about for a long time, and and we'll get into more AEW stuff uh, later in the show. But he kind of made it seem like AEW was this sort of podunk operation that these guys desperately wanted him, and they were a little bit markish in the way that they reached out to him, and they were texting him offers and X, Y, and Z. And from what I understand, a lot of what he said was, you know, not 100% true one side of the story versus the other side of the story. But I think it's pretty clear that the other side of the story is very much saying that he is uh, full of it. Uh, But what did you think about the whole thing? Because we hadn't heard about CM Punk and wrestling in a long time. We talked about him signing with StarCast. Now he's back in the news. He's a hot free agent. What do you think comes out of all this stuff? Um, I think he... I kind of think he is okay to kind of still do what he wants to do. Uh, I think... I think WWE would the place where he goes if he's going to get back into wrestling because there's so much more money there. You know, um, a less 
unless he gets this crazy offer from AEW. I know they have a lot of money, and I'm sure Tony Khan can offer him a lot of money, but can he compete with WWE? I don't know. And very interesting. I think you know, that would be huge news if you can sign CM Punk and have a debut on your opening and show. I think it'd be uh, a, a big deal. But uh, we'll see. What do you think? Do you think he's going to go WWE? I know, I know AEW thinks he's going to go WWE, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I think he's still going to stand pat. Yeah, Cody made the comment that he thought or they thought that Punk may be going back to WWE based on what he said. And I think to some extent that was a little bit of a receipt just because of uh, everyone knows, you know, the the uh, frustration that that Punk had and, you know, WWE suing him essentially through their doctor. Um, Everybody seemingly goes back, right? Brett the Hitman Hart is the number one. um, He's the number one example of someone who had something done worse than what happened to Punk, and he still went back. So the the barrier ha- is created there, and he is not uh, he's not Bret Hart in this situation. But there, you know, there is there. The, it, we all we, it's still going on, right? He and Colt Cabana, who were previously best friends, are you know caught up in the mix of this, and they're no longer friends right now, at least according to to the public. But I think. I think what he's doing is he's doing what every smart person should do in this situation, which is if he has any modicum of interest in coming back to wrestling, he's got to bid both sides up. And that and that's what it is. Like nobody should take he, he, he should never take either company's first offer. Right. Like or that that just shows. You know, that just shows how, how much negotiating power he has, how much leverage he has, is the ability that he can say, eh, I'm good. And he made a lot of money in wrestling. You know, the, the, there's a little bit of a of a, a fallback plan with possibly doing some MMA announcing, though I can't imagine, you know, doing shows for, for lower-level MMA pays a ton. But maybe you build your career and you hope that you do what Daniel Cormier does or, you know, something like that. So I think... He is probably, I think he's the kind of guy who has a little bit of integrity, and if all else is equal, he would go to the company that he is not super frustrated in. But if it is unequal, you know, maybe money, maybe for a year, you know, the, the Bill Goldberg in in uh, two thousand and uh, and two. Uh, you know that whole thing where he just literally just did it for the money for the whole year. Maybe maybe that's in play, and um, I would not hold it against him because this is the wrestling business, and we've seen so many things happen to where you know the business is is not full of integrity. It is a business, and and guys need to make as much money as possible so they don't you know so they can sort of afford to live their life. The way that they want, so, so I would not hold that against him. But I do think that if all else was sort of equal, I think he would pick AEW because I think it's sort of he's sort of got that little kind of you know I want to beat those guys kind of mentality. But he's got to he's got to want to actually wrestle, and that's the thing that I'm not sure that he that he does right now is want to wrestle. Yeah, but if he goes back to WWE, he's definitely be a lot more. In power when it comes to the shots he wants to call and but how soon you know. before he's frustrated with Triple H and Vince? 
know, could be a year, could be, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be frustration. Everyone in their job has some kind of frustration. So I don't know. I could, I could just definitely see the money being too good for him, Vince, I think. But I also don't think, like, how much is he really worth? I mean, short term, yes. You know, he could definitely have some interest. But in the long run, he's going to bring that casual fan. He's going to bring those hardcore fans mm-hmm. you know, out more, you know. I mean, I'll never forget when CM Punk was on top of the world as WWE champion, and he threw out the first pitch of a, of a Cubs game. And I'm watching the game, and they're yeah, and was, I think it was on like WGN or whatever, and then MLB Network, and they're all CM Punk, WWE champion, throughout the throughout the first pitch, and they're like, and the announcer was like, he's the heavyweight champion. He looks like more of like a lightweight. <laughs> And I'm just like, there you go. The casual fans, he looks like a dude, you know, like he doesn't look like anything special. He's not, he's not the rock walking out. You right. Know I mean, he's not, he's not Hulk Hogan. So I just wonder like in the long run, like he's a, just a great benefit for those hardcore wrestling fans. But this, is he, is CM Punk a name that's going to capture the casual fans? I think he did in MMA because I think people were kind of curious if this pro wrestling guy could, you know, come into the cage and do well. And they also wanted killed. to see the pro wrestling guy get destroyed, though. True, definitely. So, I, you know, I still think he made a lot of money in UFC. He made a lot in wrestling. By all accounts, it doesn't seem like he's a, you know, a big spender. He knows how smart his money. So I think he's just having fun right now. But I know I kind of see him just kind of going WWE, though. The, uh, the other reason why I think AEW could be in play is because his wife is also a wrestler. And that seems like it would be a very safe place for her to be in that locker room, which is, you know, I think Chris Jericho mentioned, you know, something about they got the best locker room that he's ever seen or or whatever, which means that everyone's not trying to cut each other's throat, which has its pros and cons. Or does Jericho want a guy like CM Punk in his locker room? A guy that's going to be kind of somewhat of a drama queen. Mm-hmm. That's going to totally. play the bullshit politics game. Totally. Like, would Jericho want that? Or would Jericho want to be the second fiddle to a guy like CM Punk? Because right now, Jericho's the man, right? He's like their biggest star. Yeah. You know, and he we all know Jericho, you know, he, he has a little bit of an ego, as we know. <laughs> so, like, you know, how does he, how does he you know, react with Jericho? Jer- um, Punk. I see Jericho's a you know he's a businessman, sees money. He yeah. definitely worked a program with CM Punk, but you know I think he would also have some concerns, possibly how Punk would could disturb things in AEW. You know, right now everything's all WWE, but even then though, let's be honest, this is pro wrestling business. As things go on and money's being made, or maybe the ratings aren't as high as they thought they were going to be, and then they start pointing fingers, what's not working, who's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it can happen anyways with just without seeing Punk around. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. We'll, see, we'll know in about, you know, pretty soon here what's going to happen. You mentioned Hulk Hogan, and uh, Hogan was on the Steve Austin podcast this week, and if you just want to be entertained, it was such a fantastic show. You know that it's Hogan, that you're going to get very tall tales. I think he he pulled back a little bit on some of it because there's a, you know, there's a little bit of respect for Austin. But he told the story about how during WrestleMania 6, 
you know, he, he wanted to turn heel on, on the Ultimate Warrior, and he wanted to call himself tri- Triple H, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, and, you know, this is in 1990, so he's, he's creating this whole thing, and, and how, you know, Vince didn't want him to, and he thought he could have, you know, he could have really helped Warrior get over if he's a heel, so, you know, H- Hogan Tales. The other one he told, which I'd never heard him tell before, and maybe he has, and I just missed it, which is, he said... In 1984, when he came back to WWE, Bob Backlund created a stink and didn't want the Sheik to drop the title to Hogan because he didn't think Hogan was a real athlete. And so Vince Sr. wanted to wait, like put like a six-month hold on Hogan beating Sheik and you know Hogan was ready to go back to AWA. And I was just like, oh, come on. Still nothing beats, I think. The, the whole math problem with the travel time for Japan and the United <laughs> States. That's like probably my second favorite, but the number one favorite, and it's a really sad one, is that Andre Giant dies after WrestleMania 3, basically. <laughs> like, you know, like... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but I love Hogan, though. I mean, for all his wackiness. He's a, he's a cartoon character, and, that, and that's what he is. Uh, but but the one thing that was actually really interesting about that conversation, and this is the thing I think that fascinates me, maybe more than anything else about pro wrestling, is the just the competition in the locker room for the top positions because it's so subject. Like it's it's all it's all about who uh, you know Jim Ross always says whoever has the pencil like that's the one who makes the call. So it doesn't matter necessarily what you do if the if the guy in charge doesn't like you. And so Hogan and Austin talked about in 2002 when Hogan comes back as part of the NWO. The original choice was to work a program with Austin, and Austin ixnade that choice and then it was rock and hogan and so austin said that this goes back all the way to 1994 he said he also said look i was in a bad headspace in 2002 i was kind of frustrated things weren't going very well personally and professionally so that was also part of it but he said i mean i I thought this was fascinating because austin you know he doesn't have the greatest memory but he's a he's pretty much a straight shooter like he doesn't really give himself tons and tons of credit even though he probably deserves it you know more than just about anybody but he said 1994 and i think we we talked about this a little bit in one of the we want flair episodes that we did he said that in 1994 hogan comes in and he knew that it would be good for the company but austin's goal was to get to the top and so what he saw hogan as was a stepping stone to get to that top and he just realized that he got knocked down a notch with Hogan getting there. And we know what happens, right? All of Hogan's buddies come in. All of a sudden, Hacksaw Jim Duggan beats Austin in like seconds, right? And this is Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And uh, we're, to, we're watching him in 1993 and we're saying how, you know, he's just not the same guy. Imagine a year later, he comes into WCW and you got your, you know, the one of your top uh, workers in that company and he's got to, you know, lose to this older guy in, you know, minute or whatever. So Hogan said, I mean, Austin said that, you know, he saw Hogan as competition basically. And so he, he always sort of had that bad taste in his mouth just from that time. So fast forward to 2002 and he's like, well, here's this guy coming in again and he's, you know, kind of trying to take my spot. So I thought that was so interesting because of how honest Austin was. 
And, you know, Hogan played nice guys. Like, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, we, we would have done business. It would have been all about creating, you know, making the most money. Whoever, you know, did right or wrong. And so Hogan, you know, played it up fine. And But, but you could tell Austin, A, felt valid in his decision to not face Hogan. But also, B, was like, you know, if I had a different thought process in 2002... There could have been something there. So that was super interesting. So if anybody hasn't listened to that show yet and you can sort of deal with, you know, Hogan's tall tales, I would suggest to listen to it because it's it, that that specifically that part is super fascinating. It's funny about we we're talking about in our Facebook uh, group page, fight game media group page. Um, we had a discussion about because people were asking us, like, what are you going to do after, you know, WCW, uh, WWF 1993 Raw? What are you guys going to cover next? And, you know, people are throwing out, you know, different shows and seasons. And, and WCW 94 came up. And I think I was talking to Chris Aiken, I think it was. And, like, we both agreed, like, 94 from, like, January to June, in July. Actually, actually to August, I would say. It was really good in WCW. But Hogan comes in in July. But then you start seeing the things, right? The changes and the buddies start showing up. You mm-hmm. Jim Duggan, Bruce Pique, Honky Tonk Man, etc. And like during that year, nineteen ninety four, people have to remember Austin was on fire. Yeah, a lot of the younger fans that are listening that didn't watch that era, they, you know, hopefully one day soon, WWE would put it up on the network. Nineteen ninety four, you could see Austin. Not not being what we become Stone Cold Steve Austin, but God, yeah. he looked like a future Ric Flair of the company, right? Yeah, a top yeah. heel champion where people chase, and I mean, his you know he's definitely fascinating to watch. And Hogan coming in, I mean, I could you know you could totally that's an honest thing, you know. Austin is is is, is moving up as a top heel quickly, and all of a sudden here comes Hogan, and it's going to knock you know either going to one beat him real quick in the program. Or just, you know, start working with his buddies, which he did. And, and you know, that's a – it's crazy. You know, the business is definitely – you know, it's it's tough. You know, there's a lot of great guys in locker rooms and just can't move up because – but you also got to understand, too, from a booker's or promoter's perspective, mm-hmm. like they have certain stories that they want to tell, that they feel that this is going to draw interest, that this is going to draw, you know, money – so, and sometimes it's frustrating for guys, either especially like on the indie level, like getting on shows or not being booked or not in the matches they want. But like, if they don't fit that story, you know, it just don't fit it, yeah. right? And it's something people have to deal with and keep working hard. And, and you know, eventually you do get noticed for your hard work. Maybe not by the company you're in, but maybe a different company. You know, right? Like, like so, you know, like like there's an AEW. Maybe they see a guy like Chad Gable and how great that guy is. He's just a sensation in the ring and just not given opportunity to maybe show his personality in WWE. But maybe when he comes a free agent and he goes to AEW, maybe they see something in that they can do with him. So, right. So before we get to the G1, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on the G1 because uh, next week we are taking the week off because I am going to actually be out of town and unavailable. And basically, this upcoming week is the last week of G1. So you'll have, I think there's going to be seven shows and then the finals. 
And so we won't be able to talk about them, but I do want to preview the cards and just kind of go over the top matches and sort of where we are and we'll kind of give our predictions and what, you know, what we think is going to happen. But um, before we do that, I just, there's a piece of boxing news that is just fascinating from the point of, uh, you know, you think wrestling politics and MMA politics are bad, like boxing politics are the nuttiest of all the politics in in uh in in pros you know in in these sports that we cover so there was a a little bit of a and you know we can even go back you know we were talking about you know this was a couple months ago when DAZN uh signed a triple g to to a contract so that you know they could make that third canelo triple g fight first fight is draw Second fight, Canelo wins a really close decision. Both fights could have gone Triple G's way and maybe should have gone Triple G's way. Canelo, you know, gets the one. So let's have this third fight. You know, it's sort of, even though Canelo got that one win, there's sort of like this idea that mm, we're not so sure that that it's conclusive. It's a conclusive victory. So we need to, you know, we need to do it again. And it's also the biggest money fight still in boxing. So DAZN trying to capitalize on this. They signed Triple G with the idea that we're going to put together this third fight. It's going to happen in September, and this is going to help really help us with our subscriptions. And Canelo and Oscar De La Hoya, they had they balked at it. They were basically like, mm, not so sure Triple G deserves this. Maybe he's got to beat somebody else. So they threw, you know, a can at Triple G and he beat, you know, he beat him fairly easily. And then like, uh, I think he needs a title before he gets a, another opportunity. So they're, they're just basically like not into it. And, you know, there's other guys for Canelo to fight. But if you're zone and you sign him to this, you know, $35 million contract per fight deal, you're like, look, man, like we have to actually recoup some of this. There's also talk about Canelo and Oscar De La Hoya not getting along. So there may be disconnect in, commun- in communication there. They threw out Sergey Kovalev's name as a possible guy instead of Triple G, which means Canelo goes up in weight, slight heavyweight, to grab another belt. And then, uh, you know, the, Kovalev's got another fight. Then Kovalev is th- in the news for possibly doing something yeah. on an airplane that, could, you know, he wasn't supposed not, to do. I could not believe that. Because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not up and up as, as you are to boxing, but I remember watching his last fight, and I was like a big, part of the discussion of the build to that mm-hmm. fight and then i just see that article and i'm just like shaking my head like wow man. <laughs> look i think a lot of people are staying away from that story um mike coppinger from DAZN covered it and so you know it's still sort of out there it was it happened uh, a couple couple weeks ago so but anyway like that's not really relevant to what we're talking about so there was this kind of this discussion of you know, what? what is Canelo even going to fight in September, which has kind of been his pattern? Triple G is talking about fighting uh, Jamie Mungia. Uh, and, and so then just today, or maybe it, it might have been yesterday, actually, the uh, the IBF number one contender, guy by the name of Sergey Dervinchenko, Der, uh, uh, all of a sudden, he's the guy. And DAZN was like, okay, we approve and there's even talk about maybe Canelo has to take a little bit of a haircut on his contract in order to approve this fight because it's, you know, maybe not the 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 top guy that they wanted. So 
as much as Canelo sort of stirs the drink in boxing, like there's so many politics that hold back a lot of this stuff from happening. And we kind of talked about it last week with, with Pacquiao and Mayweather. You remember how long like it took that fight to happen. And actually, the the waiting of the fight happening probably, you know. It hurt it. Well, it hurt the actual it hurt the actual fight, but from a draw perspective, it probably helped because people just were salivating finally, even though those guys were so old. But the actual competition in the ring, yeah, man, it, that fight was you know five years too late or whatever it was. So, mm-hmm. so you know, boxing gets in the way of itself constantly, and uh, you know, it's all about the top promoters and protecting your guy and making sure your guy stays on top, and you know, Canelo. Uh, probably wants to wait Golovkin out even another couple years so that Golovkin gets really old and that and Canelo's still in his prime and then okay I'm ready you know we'll, we'll let him fight us again you know that kind of thing so I wanted to kind of put that story out there just because it just shows that you know boxing the the you know we talk about wrestling politics and you know even Dana White but man boxing is the takes the cake when it comes to this stuff so who does if you know the zone has a contract so they just can't make that fight so, I mean, I, I don't know what is in writing, you know, with, with John Skipper. Um, he would be the guy to work with these guys and to, and to, you know, be the one making sure that this stuff happens. You know, he's a professional. He's a really smart guy. But this is just a different level of, of politics. And he's been with all the big-time players, right? ESPN has the NFL, it has the NBA, it has Major League Baseball, and I imagine the negotiations for those deals were brutal. But now you're with, like, sharks who just don't give a crap about <laughs> the truth and about what they signed, and so it's so different. Um, but, yeah, that, that that story is fascinating for me uh, because, you know, just the whole it's the whole new business, yet it's the same business it's always been. So, um, okay, so let, let's quickly talk about G1. So we had, uh, since our last show, which we recorded last Thursday, you probably heard it last Friday, there were three more shows. Uh, and uh, I don't know what you thought about the quality of these shows, but you know they, I, I, the, there's a rare occasion when a G1 doesn't live up to you know the expectation. But let's quickly go through some of these matches. So on, um, on Saturday, last Saturday... So we had Kotobushi beating Lance Archer in what I thought was a pretty fun match. I think Lance Archer is the guy who has probably made the most money for himself in this tournament who is not like a main New Japan guy. I think he's just been fascinating the whole the whole way through. Yeah, it was a really good match. That had I had a few little things I thought I thought they did. I thought it could have been a little better executed. But overnight, I liked the match. Like, remember the pounce he did? And then mm-hmm. Dakota did a double double knee stomp mm-hmm. to kind of stop him. I just thought it looked kind of clunky. And I think it was kind of like an overthinking thing. I think mm-hmm. it would have just been mm-hmm. a simple drop kick. would have been nice. And Trying to be creative. Trying to be too creative. Um, and, you know, the blackout he does was like that reverse, like, power bomb. Like, Razor's Edge kind of move. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like... Coda gets out of it, you know, wiggles out of it and gets out of it, and it throws like a high kick. I'm thinking like the Lance has been so dominant at that point, like he just caught the kick. Like I think I just I just thought Coda should throw a spin kick in the gut and then did the high kick. I mean, this is this is very nitpicky stuff, but this yeah. is just the way my my brain works. Yeah, 
want to watch these matches, but I, I like that match. And you're right. I, my favorite, uh, like, guy I wasn't looking forward to watching that was from the start of the tournament. But now I'm like, I look forward to all of look, look forward to Lance Archer. And I love his match with Okada, too, as well. And so I think the flip side to Lance Archer is uh, Bad Luck Fale. He he has had tournaments in the past where, because he's so big and he's kind of like um, a little different that you can do different things in the matches with him this year, but now he's kind of just like a patsy. He's like a tough guy patsy. And um, here uh, he um, he loses to, uh, to, to Will Ospreay in, you know, not probably, uh, it's got to be, Osprey's worst match of the tournament, and Osprey's the you know the hot guy. Uh, but it was I think it was kind of the match that we were going to give a pass to, and like okay, like Will's just not going to have that crazy fantastic match with this one. I think what hurts Folly is that they have to do the interference stuff. Yeah, I mean they rely on that so much in his matches that, and I think when Folly is just just being the brawler, just being a big man, and and there's no interference, that you know he has good matches, so. It's just just the way they're booking the Bullet Club with Jado and Chris Owens uh, you know, on, the, on the outside, and or Chase Owens on the outside. It just it just just really hurts all the matches, and 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 a lot of the ref bumps is getting pretty annoying as they do every G one. So, and then we had uh, Evil and Zack Saber Jr. I thought Zack was going to go on a little bit of a run when he finally got that countout win. Uh, but he didn't hear. Evil gets the win, um, and you know Zach Zach Styles stands out because it's so different. And then he's going to go on and have a, a really good match with, with Will Osprey. What you think of this one? Uh, Evil and Zach, but that that was good. It was entertaining. Uh, you know, typical Zach Sabre matches, and uh, yeah, I, I liked it. Were you slightly disappointed in uh, Tanahashi and Sonata? Yes, <laughs> I was a little let down. I mean, maybe my expectations were way too high. Yeah, but it just there were some there were some issues. There were some timing issues. Um, I I don't know what was going on. What what happened there? But you know, Tanahashi definitely makes it up with his match with Evil for sure. Yeah. And then uh, Okada and Kenta is is a pretty polarizing match. I think you even said that, or somebody said, and maybe it wouldn't have been you, that you hated it and you loved it at the same time. Yeah, I just, um, I thought this was the match. I thought that if Okada is going to lose, which I don't know if he is in the, you know, the tournament or something, they this was the, I think Kenta's the guy to get some kind of a win or some kind of a, you know, going to a draw with Okada to earn that title shot in October. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was kind of like. I just felt like it kind of hurt Kenta's momentum because I think he's gaining momentum. And well, and then he, a, and then he lost again. Yeah, yeah. So now you know, now he's going to go on a, I guess, a run where he's going to be losing matches, and then everything's going to even out by the finals. But um, I just, I just, I was kind of disappointed in. And, and him losing, I was hoping, I think it would have been a big deal if he won or a draw. But the match was, I thought the match was really good, though. Yeah, match was, match was really good. Um, and it, but I know the Rainmaker's very, really, you know, it's a, it's a really protected move. But, like, didn't that one seem weak, though? 
<laughs> I was I was thinking the same thing on his uh, the match with Archer. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It took like one, just one. But Archer, like I don't know. I think he's. I think Archer actually sold it better than Kenta. It just mm-hmm. seemed like mm-hmm. it just seemed like Kenta was beating the shit out of Okada. I guess Lance was beating the shit out of Okada too. So. I don't know. I just felt like it just kind of felt like out of nowhere. I think I would have been happy if it was like two Rainmakers. Like yeah. he didn't have to kick out of the Rainmaker, but I think Okada could have just put a stamp on it. Like yeah. picking him back up. And it just wasn't like a dramatic Rainmaker like he usually does. Like it's usually like there's a moment when it's going to happen. You kind of feel it. It just kind of came and he did it and pinned. And I think the crowd was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so Sunday. Uh, on the on the B block, um, so we had uh, Goto against Yano, and this match was really quick. And Goto used a pretty cool like leg lock roll up that I thought mm-hmm. I thought was a uh, pretty sweet. And yeah. you know, the, 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 when you get the Yano matches, you a you know that they're not going to be long, so you know you know what to expect. And you know he's. He's got two wins. Um, you know, Goto's got two wins. Yano's not going to be in the mix at the end, but he's kind of there for the change of pace. And I, I guess I haven't been super frustrated with him this year at, at any point. Whereas I think last year and the year before, there was some lot of entertaining spot, but then I was like super frustrated in other ways. <laughs> I thought I don't know. I th- maybe I'm just used to it, but I'm, I, I've been enjoying his matches this year. I know yes. you. I know you didn't like the Jay White one specifically. No, I just didn't like, especially I didn't like Yano beating him. You yeah. Know, I thought that was ridiculous. Um, it was cool to see Goto bring back that leg lock. He's, you know, done it in the past. It was kind of funny that a gif of that leg lock was filtering around, like, before mm. the match. So I wonder if that, like, got his attention. Like, oh, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I used to do that cool, you know, cradle move, you know. So, yeah, it was, I mean, Yano matches are, overall, I, I enjoy them. I just, him beating certain people, I just it just doesn't. It just doesn't compete with me, you know? So the Ishii and Juice Robinson match, I really liked a lot of this match, but I was just kind of wondering, like, the... You know, sometimes you go... You you do stuff in a match, and you're kind of leading fans to believe that, you know, there's a natural cadence, and and here's kind of where it's going to end, so get ready. And they did that... And then they went longer, and then they went longer, and then they went longer. <laughs> like, I felt like they had hit the peak, like, maybe even twice before they got to the finish. And so there was a sort of a, a, a bit of a um, – it was almost like an irregular rhythm to me of what I'm sort of used to when it comes to kind of the climax of a wrestling match. And maybe that's good because, you know, I'm assuming that I know where this thing is going, and mm-hmm. they're just – they just keep going and going and going. But what did you think about this match? I mean, 18 minutes, but like the stuff was really cool. A lot of it was like, I'm just going to hit you as, as freaking hard as I can. (laughs) Like there was like really hard clotheslines, um, really hard chops. And, and, uh, you know, there were some, you know, headbutts, but safe headbutts, but they were, you know, they, they were trying to get over the headbutt. And what did you think about this one? Oh, I liked it a lot, and I thought, uh, you know, once again, Ishii gives a guy his best match in the tournament so mm-hmm, far, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was... Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah I, I dug it, and I did feel it went a tad bit a little too long, but the crowd was super hot into yeah. it. And yeah. I'm a big fan of, like, 
going against the grain and doing something different, leading people a certain way. Like you think it's going to be this. And yeah. But yeah, you're right. It did feel like a minute or two. They, they, they could have went home a little earlier. So Jeff Cobb gets his second win beating Taichi in a match that I was ready for people to just crap on before it even started. But the match was good. Yeah, they have great chemistry. They, of course, you know, Tai Tai Chi beat him for the uh, Never title a few months ago, and they had a really good match. And the crowd was really into it. The crowd really was behind Jeff. Um, I think for him, I think he, you know, the whole babyface heel is a lot easier to work than babyface, babyface, which he had to do with Juice. Um, so I think here he played off of the interference and or distraction and the you know the the the, the heel tactics that Tai Chi you know uses and and with all the BS that Tai Chi does he's like a really good character and a good wrestler too and they just have really good chemistry together and 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 they delivered again and uh, that, that pile driver looked freaking nasty <laughs> I don't know if Tai Chi thought maybe. It was going to be a power bomb, or or what? It just I'm just you know just glad that you know Jeff was able to protect him, and and I at first I was like oh shit, Taiji's dead, and then, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was just a really really good match. It's probably one of my favorite, probably my second favorite Cobb match so far in the Chima tournament, you know. And then he has a great one coming up, so it's going to be he has some really big matches coming up actually. And uh, Shingo Takagi and Jay White, I left this match thinking these guys have such great chemistry. Their timing was awesome. They can wrestle again and again and again for as long as I uh, I don't care. Like I, I could just watch them wrestle time and time again. Yeah, perfect fiery baby face versus a great heel. So they just, yeah, they had great chemistry together. And this this is the match that shows what, you know, Jay White can you know definitely really do and, and Tagagi is just that one of those guys you just you just like you know you want to root for that guy he kind of he kind of reminds me of a younger Ishii in that you know you just kind of just want to root that guy on and and yeah they're hitting each other with some great clotheslines and reversals and uh, that sliding clothesline into the Blade Runner or you know attempt like that was that was sick that was awesome and then Moxley and Naito. Uh... Moxley is throwing a little bit of a wrench into a lot of people's <laughs> predictions <laughs> when it comes to who's going to win this this side of the bracket. Um, you know he he is now he's now he's got ten points. Uh, he beats Naito. His I think the thing that is really untouchable with him right now is just the fire. Like everything he does has so much behind it and so much fire. It's almost like he's like the Energizer Bunny. Like he doesn't get tired in any of these matches. Like he's just, you know, he's just so fiery throughout throughout the whole thing. And now, you know, in 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 the B block, um, he's got he, he's got ten points, and and Juice and Ishii are next with six. So, you know, it's quite possible that that he wins this bracket. And and you know, I don't know what they're going to do with Naito. Um, but he's got he's got some wins to to catch up. He's he's three wins behind uh, John, so it's going to be interesting the way that they book the end of this thing on the B side. Because I mean, can Moxley win this bracket? And then have Okada versus Moxley as the finals. I could see that. I could see them thinking that's a 
a big match, you know, and Okada being the only guy that beats him, uh, that could that could definitely happen. I, you know, I kind of think uh, I kind of think Naito in the finals is kind of like overdone. An old, over yeah, an old hat. Yeah, um, I could see maybe Jay White sneaking back in there, but um, yeah, I could I could definitely see Moxley and uh, and Okada go, be in their the finals if they want. Yeah, I mean on that side. Takagi, Yano, Taichi, Naito, Cobb, Goto, Jay White all have four points, so they mm-hmm. all they're all at the bottom there with the with the two wins. Um, you know, I wonder. You know, you have Okada beat Moxley, and then he gets to call a shot for Tokyo Dome, and then he's like, "Bring it, Will Osprey! Like, yeah. let's do yeah. it." That would be interesting. Yeah, definitely. I can see that happening. All right. So then, uh, Tuesday show. Uh, so it happened yesterday. We had uh, Coda against Bad Luck Fale. Uh, you know, ten minute match. Um, Coda is with his ankle. He is such a fantastic babyface. Um, but what do you think about this one? I think it was Fale's, but one of his better matches mm-hmm. in the tournament. I thought it was good. I liked the the finish. looked great. The you know the the double the knee was awesome. I thought, I, I think this is definitely Foley's best match. Yeah, Kota Kota definitely was on his game here. Uh, and the match that I was looking forward to the most in this side was uh, Will Osprey and Zack Saber Jr. And <laughs> so if you go to njpw1972.com. I think someone put a little Easter egg in the results because uh, on the results page for the, for these for these uh, G one shows, they'll have you know Coda versus Bad Luck Fale, and there will be a zero for the win and an X for the loss, and then it'll say you know what their point total is, then the match the match time, and then how he won the match, and so uh, I get is this Will's I mean is this Zach's. Uh, finisher his submission move that he beats will with because when it says what the finisher is it says hurrah another year surely this one will be better than the last the inner inexorable march of progress will lead us all to happiness <laughs> that's what it says is his finishing move uh something got lost <laughs> <laughs> nothing beats the bet this the the easter egg i found on new japan world mm. which you could DM me on that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Was that the one with uh, Ultimate Warrior? No, it wasn't Ultimate Warrior. It was Scott Norton. Oh, Scott Norton. Got yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Osprey and Zach. I was a bit surprised with uh, with the finish here. I, I not that I was a hundred percent sure Osprey was going to win, but it was also sort of the way that he lost, which I thought was very smart. You know, Zach hooks in this ridiculous submission hold at the end of the match, and Will just taps really quickly. Um, uh, but the match leading up to the whole thing it was twenty minutes long. You know, I thought it was really good. There, you know, there may have been uh, a little bit too much from Will from like a flying perspective because Zach is so ground based, and I really loved it when they were on the ground. But you know, that's Will's game. But uh, what'd you think about this one? I thought it was good. The only thing I didn't like about it is that I felt like all this punishment Zach is taking from Osprey, he's super kicking him, he's kicking him in the head multiple times, and he quickly locks in a submission like, mm-hmm. no big, like, mm-hmm. like he hasn't been hurt. 
like he doesn't sell sometimes like yeah. yeah sometimes he's really good at it and sometimes it's just like it's like he like he does has no it shows no damage and then just so the finish i felt like that was happening like it was just like he was going to the zero to hero too quick and right so I it was like there yeah it's 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 like their reversal style sometimes it's just to like you just go to it quickly because you're smarter than the other guy but then you know you're not the the damage that they did for five minutes prior like doesn't doesn't uh you, you don't acknowledge it yeah and so i thought it was i thought it was good i just then i kind of like when i thought about him like well shit how's he already back up after you know you know osprey's like connecting these big super kicks to his head and and all of a sudden he slickly reverses it and he has a submission hold in and 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 makes him tap i just thought it was a little bit much for me and then uh uh, we already talked about it because okada beats lance archer so okada goes to 12 points archer still only has one uh only has two wins but you know he's he's been he's he's been a stud this whole tournament uh kenta and sonata Sonata gets his second win, and like we said, Kenta takes his second loss in a row. So he's stalling out a little bit after the hot start, which still leaves him in second place, but he is now tied in a three-way tie with Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi for second place. Well, sometimes you go four for four, sometimes you go four for three, right? I guess he's I having his little slump going right now. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. thought this match was good. I actually liked it better than actually Kenta, uh, Tanahashi and Sonata. I think they... Yeah, so did they I. did well. The only thing about Sonata, and I love him, it's just God. I hope he just drops the Cold Stone finisher. <laughs> I, Garrett, I think you and I could reverse that no problem. Uh-huh. We can get out of it. We know all the reversals. It only takes a millisecond to get out of it. Um, I think he needs to just come up with something different. It's it's like does it's like anyone believe he's gonna finish someone with that? I, you know, like. Like half the time he just you know the guy reverses so fast. I know he beat he beat Kenna with it, right? He finally tapped him out. No, he did the moonsault. He used the moonsault. Yeah, yeah he, he used the moonsault on the weekend him. Yep. And then he did the moonsault, and you know I just think it's funny when he when he just people just can easily just reverse that with no problem. But yeah, it was a good match, and you know Kenta looked good, Sonata looked good. Uh, I definitely you know, the man. I think Sonata probably is like you know I gotta go match. After he had that, you know, it was a really good match with Tanahashi. It just wasn't, I guess it wasn't really what we wanted, you know. We probably had it. We, like I said, we probably overhyped that match too much. Yeah, yeah. And then your favorite, Tanahashi and Evil. Uh, Tanahashi, best seller, best baby face, wins with the high fly flow. Uh, the, the, what I, you know, it's, it's really amazing because he does the, the standing one or the high cross body really uh, 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 from the top to the floor. And he's able to like land it in a way where it looks like he bangs the shit out of his knee, so he could sell the knee. But it looks like he hits the knee. It's like so. Like I, I mean, I don't know if he like he figures a way to like manipulate his body so that you know he comes crashing. And I hope he really doesn't hit his knee. But I just like he's the master of of just making that thing look legit, where it just looks like he's crippling himself. And you're just like, ah, this poor guy and his poor knees. Yeah, unlike his match with Sonata, which I think he looked really hurt in that match. Like, he looked beat up in that match. So, I mean, so maybe that was one of the issues with that match. Maybe he just was having a bad day. Because I mean, that, him that, even that high five flow he did to beat Sonata was kind of like, not that high. <laughs> <laughs> but this match here with Evil was freaking awesome. And, I'm, and you know, I like Evil a lot. I just, like, I don't see him as, like, a threat. Mm-hmm. 
God. I mean, they, I mean, Tanahashi made it seem like he was going to get beat in that match. I mean, everything was perfectly timed and they're hitting all on everything and the storytelling was great. I mean, it's evil kept fighting and fighting fight, trying to just, just, you know, knock his head off those big clotheslines and, you know, trying to hit, you know, his finisher, the ST, you know, STO and, and they even did like one of the things I hate about spots like evil spot where he does the ref where he gets the guy guy try to kick him he gets the leg he throws a, whips the leg to the referee the referee catches the leg and he hits a super kick like he does that almost every match and it just drives me nuts because like how does this happen every match like, mm-hmm. it's not believable it happens every match right but what was cool is that they flipped it here Tanahashi did it to evil which I thought was pretty awesome and um, but when it's done once and different. It means something, but when you do it every every match, it just it, like I said, like you get tired of it. So yeah, yep, yep. But this, like you said, Tanahashi looked like just classic Tanahashi here, just hitting everything. The fire, the crowd was going nuts. The high fly flows looked great this time. I mean, yeah, this is a killer main event, definitely one not to pass up on. All right, let's quickly go through the rest of these shows since we are going to miss next week. I just want to run through some of the top matches. So. Thursday, meaning tomorrow, meaning uh, by the time you listen to this, the show's probably already happened. Jeff Cobb against Shingo Takagi in, uh, you know, maybe uh, Jeff's, uh, you know, his next sort of high-level match for expectation purposes since, uh, you know, Shingo's had some great matches. So hopefully they have a great one. Uh, Do you think Moxley takes a loss here against Yano? Hmm. God, that would suck. (laughs) I just think, like, you just can't have this guy go undefeated and lose to the comedy guy. In the mm-hmm. I just think that's stupid. But I can see Gato doing that, though, and it'll just frustrate the hell out of me. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of, you know, Yano kind of plays spoiler in, in matches like this. Mm-hmm. Juice against Naito, um, Taichi, Jay White, and then Ishii and, uh, and Goto. Interestingly enough, because, you know, we're, we're talking about Ishii, uh, you know, every every single time we're talking about how great his matches are, he still only has three wins. So, mm-hmm. you know, for him to, if he wants to get back in the mix, you know, he's got to win this one against Goto. And you remember last year they had a great main event. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why they're in the main event position again. So, yeah, shit, they're going to go out there and kill each other, I'm sure. So, Sunday's show, uh, we have um, Kenta and Bad Luck Fale. Good luck with that one. Uh, Zack Sabre and Lance Archer, which could be fun, but is really a mix of styles. Uh, it could be a styles clash as well. Osprey against Evil, which could, uh, which should be a, a fun match. And then Tanahashi against Kota Ibushi. Holy shit. Yeah, they had a killer finals last year. And I'm sure they're going to have a great match. And, <laughs> you know, it's going to be, should be pretty epic. And who wins that one? I'm going to say Kota Revenge gets his revenge and beats him here. Yeah, Kota's, you know, if he gets his revenge, then he moves ahead of Tanahashi, uh, probably into second place and maybe even by himself in the A block. And then Tanahashi would fall back and it'd be a little hard for Tanahashi to, to catch uh, Okada at that point. Um, and then the main event, Okada and Sonata, which again, that should be really good. Um, you know, they, they, uh, Sonata, I think we're looking for opportunities for him to establish that he can really take it to the next level. And this is going to be a great opportunity for him. Yeah. He had a great main event with Okada earlier this year. So I assume this will be similar to that. And it'd be, 
I mean, I have no time to do it. It'd be kind of cool to kind of rewatch that, you know, mm-hmm. match earlier and see what they do different here. But I just had no time. So um, I remember they had a great match. So we'll see if uh, if Sonata could get the upset here or or Okada goes undefeated. And then on Sunday, you got Ishii and Yano. You got Juice and Taichi. And then Goto and Jeff Cobb, which I'm going to predict will be second to only Ishii as Jeff Cobb's best match of the G1 up to this point. Because I think him and Goto, they've already wrestled before. They had the little feud going on. And they both wrestled the perfect style for each other. Yeah, they complement each other really well. And they're comfortable with each other in the ring. So, yeah, and I think... I wonder if Jeff pulls it out of this. Nah, I'm going to say he loses here, but maybe beats Takagi the, the show before. And then you got John Moxley and Jay White. The only thing I will say is just be a little patient with Jay White, Moxley. Like, I know you're ready to go like 100 miles an hour, but let's let let let, let, let Jay do Jay stuff to, to kind of set the table. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to do a lot of stalling and he's going to frustrate Moxley and then Moxley's going to jump out and start beating the shit out of him. This might, they might, you know, definitely going to see some brawling in the stands. And I'm sure you're going to see a lot of plunder, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the little table comes out and chairs are used and whatnot. And, you know, Gato's going to get involved. It's going to be wild. And then Naito and Shingo Takagi, which should be really great. Yeah, it should be freaking awesome. So then there's a few days off, and they come back on August 7th on Wednesday. And uh, Sonata and Lance Archer could be a fun match. And we'll we'll see if Tanahashi can pull out uh, Bad Luck Fale's best match of the tournament so far, because they, they, they have each other. He usually beats him by count out as well. Uh, he usually kind of slips and sneaks back in, that kind of stuff. And um, he's had some fun matches with in the past so we'll see if he can he can do it here and i think he can osprey and kenta will be another sort of styles clash kind of match uh and it'll be interesting to see what happens there coda against zach saber jr which will be excellent i'm guessing and then okada and evil which should also be really good yeah it was that last year that evil beat okada to set up the, the title match in october of last mm-hmm. year i believe so but i think and they had a great match last year. She won, so I think this year, Okada definitely uh, not losing this time around. I'm really looking forward to that um, Kenta and Osprey. And Osprey, yeah, that's 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 a definitely a match I'm looking forward to. And then on Thursday, August eighth, we have uh, Yano and Taichi, which I think people will go. I'm going to fast forward that match, and you know it probably will be better than people think. Um, Cobb and Naito, which should be ridiculous, but we'll see in that second slot of the five matches, they may not get a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, if you let these guys go, I think that will be, that could be really fun. And then Goto and Moxley, uh, Juice and Jay, and then the main event, Ishii and Takagi, which should be awesome. Yeah. Um, I think they placed, placed that correctly, that those matches, I think. I think Ishii and Takagi is going to be nuts. I don't think they don't think anyone can surpass it. Uh, I hope Jeff and, Ta- and Naito get some good time. Um, it'd be interesting to see how Naito... Naito's so smart, so how he works with Jeff, incorporates Jeff's stuff in the match is going to be mm-hmm. interesting. I, I think, of course, I think Naito definitely beats Cobb here. 
And then Saturday, August 10th, we have the last A Block show uh, before the before the uh, the semifinals, which is um, Okada and Kota Ibushi. Like, holy shit! Okada versus Kota Ibushi. That's is um, is he the one that beats him, or is he the? <laughs> It's already going to feed. Oh, yeah, so this is now it's getting really good, man. It's getting, it's... Yeah, Okada's got to lose for Kota to have a chance in this match to to get to the to the A Block Finals. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they they're tied at this point, and then this is where you know Okada finally loses and sets up. Uh... But who does he lose to? Sonata, Evil. Mm. Damn. <laughs> you see, I'm not, unfortunately, not one that kind of like maps out the tournament before yeah, it starts. So I know, I, me I neither. Just, I just kind of like let it flow. Yeah, and it gets me excited. I don't really follow it that that closely until like well, maybe because of the point system. I just more, I yeah, I don't even the match. Quality. Yeah, I don't really pay attention to the points either until the end. I'm like more or less looking for like you know best match and all that stuff too. So, but ho- but holy hell, man! Like this is going to be so awesome. And so yeah. then, you know, you you have that match, and what do you follow it up with? But Tanahashi and Will Ospreay, like they're like stacking this Saturday uh, A Block last card. So Tanahashi is uh, main eventing it. No, well, so I mean, I'm just going by wh- how they list the order. The uh, they may have like sort of flipped it uh, on this one on accident because Sonata and Bad Luck Fale are in the bottom spot, but I imagine that's the opening match, and then Evil Lance Archer, then Kenta Zack Saber, and then Tanahashi and Osprey, and then Okada Ibushi. They kind of have oh, okay. it flipped upside down that the way they sense. usually do it. it but makes holy sense, cow, you, man! You definitely got it. You definitely got to end it with Okada and Ibushi for sure. Yeah, that that night's going to be ridiculous. And then the Sunday show, which is the last B Block tournament show. Um, Juice and Moxley, which should be crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Ishii and Taichi, Yano and Jeff Cobb, Goto and uh, Shingo Takagi, and then Naito and Jay White, which, unless those guys, like, start picking up some wins, I'm not sure they're going to, you know, sort of have a... have a, a be, They could possibly be spoilers or, or whatever, so that'll be interesting to see as well. And then on Monday... You get the finals with uh, the A block winner versus the B block winner. So that's the rest of the tournament, and um, you know we're more than we're more than halfway there. So or maybe we're just about halfway, something like that. So, anyways, uh, that that that's kind of what you have to look forward to. And uh, since we will miss next week, we will be back to talk about sort of how the tournament ended. I wonder if. Somehow in the last night, Jay White, Moxley, and Naito are tied, and Juice plays spoiler with with Moxley, gets his revenge, sets up a U.S. title shot in the future, and then it's Jay White and uh, you know Jay White and Naito at the at the, at the as the final, you know. Strategically placed like last, you know, mm-hmm. and Moxie strategically placed early, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll have a pretty good idea of what the story is heading into uh, heading into those those yeah. last few shows. So, 
quickly, I want to talk a little bit about WWE. What did you think of the Raw rating when it came in even worse than the Raw before the Raw reunion? A bit surprised. I thought I thought they would have some kind of little bit of a either the same or, or a little bit higher, but yeah, I was kind of shocked by that. I think also too that first hour hurt them a lot, mm-hmm. and didn't keep people from tuning in past that because I from I didn't watch the show, but reading results like there's a lot of a lot of the goofy stuff with the twenty four seven title mm-hmm. and all that like uh, I you know they they and they did like a, I heard they did a great angle with Seth and and uh, Brock. I actually was gonna go back and before our show we watched the last angle. And see how that all that played together, even with the, um, the 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 angle at the end too, with everyone kind of getting involved without that sound. That was definitely classic Heyman stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of disappointing, and 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 you know, what do you expect when you're not building your stars and yeah, creating people interest. Yeah, I thought they were gonna have a little bit of a. Um... I think that I thought they were going to be a little bit higher than the week before simply because of that rating, but I was way off and people were just like, okay, I'm back just for this one show because of these guys. And I absolutely don't care about the rest of this, the rest of the stuff. Yeah. They need to make that 24 seven title, just us its own segment, but not have it be so dominant for like a whole hour or two or mm-hmm. a show, you know, maybe they're going to kind of cut back. I'm sure it's fun to write. I'm yeah, sure the writers are all having a good time because this is, you know, stuff they enjoy. But like, um, you know, I hope Vince doesn't sour on Heyman right with because this rating. I do know he quickly changed a lot of the SmackDown the next day. Mm-hmm. So which also writes. which also was down, but was not as disappointing because they didn't have the super high. Uh, rating the pre- week before, though they were they were, you know, they were much higher the week yeah, before. Were, I think they had a good rating, a higher rating than the week before last. Now dipped down again, which you know. So what? Yeah, what's you think? Some desperation happens, or people freaking out, <laughs> or, or do you just kind of like let's let's get keep the stakes. Keep this going and see if it can, you know, capture an audience. You know, the thing that I would do, and I know this is really hard because you're in a war now and it's weekly and you have analytics that are right there staring you in the face every week and you're not selling out raw at MSG. And from what I understand, the the prices for uh, the Chase Center, which is, you know, the new uh, where where the Warriors are going to play in San Francisco. Um, I, from what I understand, those prices were way high as well, though I haven't heard a number of tickets that, uh, that, that, uh, the expectation to, for them to sell, but I would just try very hard to create a path and stick to it and not worry about hot shotting and maybe take a little bit of, uh, uh, of pounding in the ratings, but with the idea that you're building programs that eventually the audience is going to come back. But I understand why they do it the way they do it because there's, they 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 just can't help themselves. What do you think of the Roman Reigns? Angle? Oh my god! So I think the payoff is going to be fine, but I thought the way that they shot it was so hokey. And yeah, why do they have the camera angle within the the 
the middle of the of the pieces that fell. Like that's just like like that that camera angle wouldn't be there in real life, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, the, and, and Kayla's uh, acting and Roman's acting, <laughs> like there had to be more takes that they could have done. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, it's, it's like just... it's like okay, Roman, I know you're in Fast, you're in Hobbs and Shaw. We know that you can do this. You know, let's do this one more time. Give me a little bit more feeling. Give me a little <laughs> bit more you. But he was just like he almost was like, why do I have to do this shit? Like that's almost what it looked like he he was feeling when he was doing it. Who's your um, prediction? I well, I kind of know who it is, so I can't say. Um, but I think people will be. I think people will be fine. With, with the, they'll be happy with 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 what happens. I think if you read your observer, you may get the person. Um, I, I you might. I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to spoil that information because the person who told me is. Write, writes this stuff for a living and I want him to be able to, to say that so well I'm gonna say it. okay it's Ebers Albra from <laughs> Stringer Bell that's Stringer Bell to me that's Stringer Bell it's big the celebrity tie-in for some reason but he has to have the motorcycle that commands on his mm-hmm. it has to have that he's he's the uh, he, he he's the black Superman, according to the trailer of uh, Hobbs and Shaw, which I am going to see Friday morning for like second showing that I can that I can see him. So and I'm going to see it Sunday, which uh, with with the heartbreak kid, David Rubio. That's awesome. My beautiful wife, Katrina, and his uh, beautiful lady, Raquel. So it should be fun. That would be awesome. All right. So just quickly, I'm going to give you the matches so far for SummerSlam, and I kind of want to get your feeling. So it's going to be Roman against, you know, the the perpetrator. Uh, Trish came back on SmackDown, and and she and Charlotte are going to work together. Seth and Brock, which which we we talked about a little bit. Becky and Natalie, which they are heating up, and Natalie is kind of like, or sorry, Natalia is kind of like, um, she's in the right, I think, even as sort of the heel character. I think she's completely in the right here. Um, Kofi Kingston and Randy Orton in the uh, stupid match. Um, Bailey and Ember, Kevin Owens and Shane, where Kevin Owens, if he doesn't win, I think he's got to leave or he's, there's like some stipulation in that match. Finn against the Fiend, Bray Wyatt, and then AJ and Ricochet. So on a scale of one to 10, what is your interest based on those matches that I just mentioned? Is Braun Strowman wrestling on there? From not, not, he's not locked in yet on a match. Huh. Interesting. All right. Um, Overall, I'm interested. I'm interested. There's some matches I want to see. Um, yeah, I'm always interested in what Brock does. So we'll see what they do there. Um, Trish and uh, I think Trish Straw is probably the most anticipating match, right? It's new, it's fresh, it's different. So, so yeah, yeah, looking, for, yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, I think I, I'm I'm like at a six and a half, seven. I think I could be a little bit more interested. If I believe that AJ and Ricochet will get to have the match that they deserve, I'm kind of intrigued with Kofi and Randy, though, because they're, like, playing a lot of this match based off of, like, real sort of heat that they had in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Randy just being a dick to him, basically. So I think that could be really fun. Um, so but Kofi's retaining, right? I don't know. Because that's, like, the story. I guess. I mean, he should get – Randy should get his comeuppance, right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I mean, this seems like the story they're telling is that he's gonna, Kofu's finally gonna slay the guy that held him down years mm-hmm. ago, which I hope not. I hope to stay in the arcade in the middle of the ring and just end this ridiculous <laughs> reign that's gone too long. Cool moment, just too long. Um. Okay, so. The other piece of news in wrestling, I said we were going to come back to AEW, and the information or the news is that I think it's on Friday they sell or they put the tickets on sale to their first TV, live TV show in October. And I I kind of texted you and I was like, you know, we're going to have to do two shows that week because AEW's live TV debut on TNT and then SmackDown on Fox is on Friday, so we're probably gonna have to figure out a way to, you know, maybe do a show on the weekend to to cover the Fox stuff. But so they they put tickets on sale. So far, there are two matches. One match is Cody Rhodes versus Sammy Guevara, and the second match is Kenny Omega and the Bucks versus Chris Jericho and two mystery partners who Jericho is teasing as, you know, very important team. Um, I did sort of some deductive reasoning and i thought okay not the usos uh gallows and anderson just resigned can't be them i don't think the revival are up yet so unless it's like some random wwe team that we haven't been paying attention to i don't think it's coming from there so it's got to be someone who is already, you know, whether it's an LAX or whether it's team, you know, folks that are already in AEW, they're, you know, that 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 will be interesting to see what it is. I don't think it's going to be the Lucha Bros because we've seen that before, yeah, right? Was, like, yeah, like, no more. There's got to be a surprise if you're going to tease that it's mystery tag team. Yeah, I don't know who it is going to be, and but I do like the idea of the mystery for people to get interested to check in the first episode, I think people are going to check it out anyways. They're definitely, you know, but I think it's kind of cool to have some kind of mystery going in. So I like, I like what they're doing there. Yeah, WWE doesn't do that anymore, right? You never have that mystery person anymore for WWE. They because or you don't you don't uh, market the mystery. The WWE basically wants it to become like a surprise every time. So that's something that doesn't happen often. And uh, and yeah, I, I kind of like that too. So. This this pre-sale is going to be very interesting because if AEW doesn't sell out, all the uh, WWE apologists and the people who are going to be very critical of AEW, they're going to be on their case. And if AEW does sell out on the first day, those same people are going to make excuses as to why. So it's going to be uh, interesting. I, I think they'll do a good number. I don't think they're going to sell out. And um, I think TV, I think weekly TV in general is going to be a little bit more difficult than sort of like that, you know, that weekend travel crowd that, that they count on. So yeah, this is, this is kind of a test for them. And, uh, and I really want to see what they do. I think they're going to end up selling at that place. Will they sell the first day? I mean, I'm not sure, but I can't count these guys out, man. I can't say they're not going to do anything because they end up, they end up doing it. I so. think, I think they should sell out the first show. I just don't think they're going to sell it out in the first day, but you know they've proven us wrong every single time. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I mean, I'm not really like can't wait to see what happens with this because I just see like they're just gonna sell out anyways. And but what ha- what happens in week five and six and seven? Yeah, continue to continue. That's 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 the key. That's when they start realizing, hey, man, where our shit don't stink too much that much. You know, we can't just do everything. It's gonna sell out. You know. All right. Before we get to the interview um, with my uh, with my buddy. 
Chris D. Petrillo. I think I got that right again. Uh, we, uh, I just want to ask you quickly, and maybe this is the only sort of MMA tie-in that we have for this entire show, but are you going to watch Triple Mania to see Cain Velasquez and his uh, pro-wrestling Lucha Libre debut? Like live? No. <laughs> well, no, why, why would I torture myself for Come on, Saturday night. Four hours of Triple A Lucha Libre. <laughs> I mean, unless you go into, like, the American commentary side and, like, listen to that. Like, listen to Vampiro being van- crazy Vampiro. It might be worth it. Like, God, was it last year that he was just at it, just going nuts? Like, was this all over the place? Both guys. I mean, it's, it's him, striker, he, yeah, but it's Striker, too. Jeez. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that Every year, the, 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 the commentary team on the U.S. side has always been so bad. Yeah. Um uh i'll wait to it'll be up very quickly on youtube and i'll just wait till someone posts the match and i'll check it out and and, uh he seems for that espn article he seems very you know passionate about putting on a really good performance you know yep but he's also doing lucha exactly so god bless him all right so i'm gonna throw to the interview that i did earlier this week with chris d petrillo uh about wrestling figures and and just the uh, toy business and stuff in general so uh it'll be i don't know about 20 uh, probably it's probably close to a half an hour but we'll be back after the interview with our raw 1993 review of uh bam bam bigelow and bret hart as the main match and now i'm bringing chris on chris is the chief marketing officer for Figures Toy Company, and just an overall good dude. What's up, man? Hey, what's going on, man? Good to hear from you. So we've been talking about recording something together for a little bit. I am an old school WWE figure collector. What uh, the the big rubber ones? What was the company that made them? Uh, that was the original LJM line back in the eighties. So I, I mean, when those figures came out, I had. The the ones that, I mean the ones that you could find I think my my big get at some point was like King Kong Bundy because I wanted the steel cage match with Hogan, um, but the one thing I always wondered about those figures is you remember the uh, the, the commercials that they would do and then, and then they would kind of show all the figures standing ringside and those of us who had VCRs back then we would always pause it to make sure we could make out who the figures are that were coming out and for the life of me I couldn't get all the ones that I wanted. Like I finally found the British Bulldogs like at a garage sale, but I could never find them in like stores. Have, have you fo- like followed the history of how they, you know, did what they decided to release in different areas of the U S like, do you know any of the history about that line? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, with that line, uh, even like towards the end, they didn't even get to release a lot of the figures they wanted to. Like they only released Demolition Axe and Smash never came out. Um, and like a lot of those like latter day figures are actually some of the rarest ones just because of the distribution, because at various points you kind of had the market flooded with all the common figures like Big John Stud was pretty common and Cowboy Bob Orton and kind of like, you know, uh, mid carters and whatnot. So a lot of people, once they had the Hogan's, the Andres, everything like that, um, you know, they just weren't 
buying them anymore and the newer figures just weren't shipping as much so it wasn't even really like a geographical thing as much of also like from the sales perspective uh it kind of goes uh, along with what uh they said about the masters of the universe line you know once he-man and skeletor sold out people didn't really want the fringe characters if they couldn't have the main characters so if you're not finding hogan and andre and macho man and those guys around that's why a lot of the other guys were kind of just sitting on the shelves and they didn't ship as many for the future series and i i know they released a second hogan and I think he's like wearing like a, a white shirt and like a red headband or something. And then there was a second Andre, which was in the the you know the the eighty seven version of Andre with the singlet rather than than just the trunks and the and the afro. So it did seem like they were like, okay, we have to continually you know put out Hogan's and Andres because we're not you know we're not selling some of these other guys. Yeah, I mean, they certainly did a couple of um, you know reissues and repaints and restocks and a lot of re's there. Um, they you know they did do a lot on that, but it was just you know the main thing towards the end, especially with some of those sets, was I wasn't seeing them in stores. And when I was a kid, I was at the toy store literally every weekend. Um, it was kind of like a tradition that my grandparents would pick me up uh, on Saturday afternoons, and locally we had a Toys R Us. And we had a store that was big on the East Coast called Child World. And they would take me to both of them and just kind of let me run free and choose various things. And obviously, the wrestling figures was like the main thing that I was uh, drifted towards. But a lot of those figures, like I mentioned, the Demolition Axe, uh, Ultimate Warrior, Haku, Ravishing Rick Rude, I never actually saw them in stores until later in life in collector's stores. But I would always see them on the inside covers or the back covers of the Aftermax. Yep. There was a big ad for LJN, and that's how I started realizing that those figures came out. And I remember that my grandmother actually called to order some of them, and at that point, uh, either the ad or the figures themselves had been discontinued, and I never got my hands on them. And then years later, you know, discovering that they were some of the rarest figures produced by WWF. And it is interesting because it seems like they were pretty like they they had gone into this thinking like every kid is going to want every figure because they were even making job guys like SD Jones like i was like there's an SD Jones figure and i've never seen this thing ever in in existence so it seemed you know they they probably thought i guess that that they were just going to sell these things by the truckload based on all the guys that they were producing figures of yeah, I mean, they were definitely going deep. I mean, you had SD Jones, you had Outback Jack, you had Corporal Kirshner. So there were a lot of fringe guys. And I think that just had to do with the period we were in at that time. You know, that was the boom period. And pretty much everybody from the top of the card on down had some type of recognizable uh, gimmick or memorable character. So, you know, they just wanted to see who was going to translate into sales, which was kind of good on their part, because if you had a guy who was semi-popular or semi-known from the weekend shows or something like that it you know we didn't have the merchandising bonanza that we have now with wwe shop and things like that so that could have also been a way to test to see just how popular those guys were so you talked you talked about earlier how your grandparents would take you to the store like what was your when you're growing up what is the thing that draws you to the figures because i mean you know there's other things in a toy store other than figures but for you know i, I imagine for a lot of young male children like like us you know the figures were the thing that that kind of stood out but what what was it about figures and what was kind of like your your first line of figures that you were just like you just had to have uh, the first line of figures, uh, it wasn't even necessarily a line of figures, but uh, a lot of people 
may or may not know this, I'm a huge fan of The Incredible Hulk, just the character in and of itself. And that's uh, partially for sentimental reasons because the first toy I can ever recall getting, and I was like two, three years old. I was, I was very young, but I have vivid memories of this to this day. And it was the old school 70s uh, Incredible Hulk uh, made by Mego. Mm-hmm. So they were almost like kind of like doll-like, and it was a 12-inch Hulk doll. Yeah, I remember and when I was a when I was a kid, you know, picture Linus from Peanuts with his blue blanket. Like that Hulk <laughs> came with me wherever I went. That was my blue blanket. And so anything involving the Incredible Hulk, uh, my grandparents would always get me. I was always drawn to it. And when I got a little bit older, four or five years old, the reruns of the Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno show were on locally on Saturday afternoons. So after my grandmother went to work at the family bakery, my grandfather and I, my papa and I, would go back to the house and you know it was kind of like you know back in the day you take the phone off the hook you don't want anyone to bother you and he and i would sit there for an hour and that was kind of like the papa chris time where we would watch uh, the incredible hulk tv show so right up to this point in my life i've got a, a whole assortment of hulk figures and, and memorabilia so uh the marvel stuff the hulk stuff always drew me in the wrestling stuff obviously um and masters of the universe was my other big get uh, at one point before they started really pumping out the repaints and the hard to find characters towards the end, I had the complete collection of Masters of the Universe, including vehicles and play sets. So I remember my mom gave away my Star Wars figures. Uh, I had the Darth Vader helmet um, thing that would hold all the figures. Oh, the and carry case. Yep. The carry case, and this so this is before you know we knew that these things were worth worth anything. And then, you know, when she just started giving them away and then we find out that they're actually worth something is actually like it, it, it was a little bit of a of a whoa, like, you know, this stuff could be worth something. And then, you know, as, as I get a little bit older, I start trading cards and then you understand that, oh, these cards are probably of, of some value as well. When you're growing up, you know, you have this this set uh, of toys obviously you're not thinking about, oh, I should keep them because they're going to be valuable. You're just thinking as a a normal kid, I just want to collect these because I love these. But at what point did you sort of realize that this was more than just a kid thing and it was actually a hobby? Uh, Probably around like, you know, my uh, like 12, 13 year old time frame, like early teens, because uh, like you mentioned, collecting cards and stuff, I had been collecting comics since I was about five or six years old. Um, collecting baseball cards and uh, basketball cards, stuff like that as well. Um, so with the cards, my grandfather would either buy the set. So I'd have like the kind of like the sealed box and the set was already put together or we'd buy the boxes and we'd buy the binders with the clear plastic sleeves and put all the cards in order. And we'd kind of like make a day of it. You know, that'd be a thing that we would do. And with the comics, when I was younger, I'd thumb through them, you know, throw them aside. So, you know, the staples are popping out and the covers half torn off and everything. <laughs> and it was probably around the time of, you know, that 90s comic book boom and the trading card boom where they started mass producing everything, um, which is funny to say, because looking back on it, a lot of that stuff is kind of worthless with how much they produced for it. Yep. But back then it was kind of thinking that, oh, you know, the collector's market went really high on the cards from the 60s, the 70s, and the early 80s. This stuff's going to be valuable someday, too. So that's when I started taking a lot of care of it. Um, And with the action figures, I was always really kind of OCD about my figures, you know, making sure, like, the, the hands weren't bent too far off and the weapons fit and all that stuff. So, like, with the Masters of the Universe of the Wrestlers, 
if the time came where I was like, I'm not playing with these anymore, instead of tossing them out for your yard sale or anything, my parents would just kind of put them away, like seal them up in a box and stick them in the basement. So to this day, I mean, uh, my son, my son, Zach, you know, you're familiar with him, but he actually plays with some of my original He-Man guys that were like duplicates (laughs) are still in my parents' basement because he discovered the show on Netflix. And he's like, I want to buy these. And it's like, if you look for He-Man guys now, you're either finding the vintage ones or these collector editions that they're charging like 40, 50 bucks a pop for. Right. So I was like, hey, you know, there's some in grandma and papa's basement. Let me go down and pull them up for you. So, you know, they're in good enough condition that they've held up for over 30 years that my son is playing with them now. So I do want to get to your job and what you do and how your fandom sort of, cre- you know, created opportunities for you. But uh, two other main questions before we get to that. What is your favorite wrestling figure line? The WWF Hasbro figures, the ones that came after the LGN, the smaller kind of snap action ones, mm-hmm. like you can make them jump and everything. Um, that line, I collected that line right up to the bitter end. I was so happy when Mattel decided to kind of copy that pattern and they started doing them. Um, and it's actually kind of timely that we bring that up because Mattel actually just announced that after these next couple of waves that already went into production, they're actually canceling the line and they're not intending to release any more in 2020. Wow. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, you know, they certainly made a good move targeting the older collectors like myself and like others, but I guess as far as a mainstream level, they're not moving. I mean, I see them on the shelves at my Target all the time, and the young kids. You think that, has to do, do you, that have to do with the popularity of the product? I think it has to do with the popularity of the product, and I think it has to do with the target audience because if you've got that younger kid, John Cena, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins type of audience, um, you know those figures, they want the figures that are kind of universal. They want the figures that match up. So they're going to want a six-inch you know, Cesaro and Sheamus to go and fight their S.H.I.E.L.D. guys versus having these retro-style Seth Rollins and Goldbergs. It, it, you know, it's kind of like a mishmash of who they release. So they try to mix it up with older guys and newer guys. So, you know, I don't think any eight-year-old kids were really pining for a Hasbro-style Iron Sheik figure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, uh, the, the reason why I brought that up is because I have an affinity for that WCW line that they did uh, with the guy, the really, really hard rubber, and they weren't posable at all. But I thought, right, I thought those looked super realistic from like the perspective of the models. Like I was really impressed with the artistry of those figures. I remember I, I had a, a photography class in high school, and and one of the one of the um, projects I did was you know basically creating. Uh, flare and sting in inside of a, a photograph because they looked so good. But what did you think about that line and sort of just the history of that line? Because there's similar stuff where, you know, they only released a handful. But if you if you go overseas, like people will say, oh, yeah, you know, they released these figures here. But I uh, just my memory of that line was that it just didn't last very long. It didn't. Um, that line was great. I had every single one of them. I, I loved that line. I was a huge WCW fan. Um, I could actually pretty much tell you which guys I bought in which order. But (laughs) what I found out later in life was that KB toy stores were the first stores to get them. And they got so many of them that even when they were selling, it felt like they weren't moving because they got so many of them. And by the point where they were in other stores like Toys R Us and stuff, pretty much everybody that wanted them had already had them. 
And it was at the point where KB was kind of clearing them out. And then they're popping up in Toys R Us and Kmart and stores like that at full price. So no one was buying them because they had already been cheap at KB toy stores. Uh, And like you said, there were some international releases because one of the first things that I saw when I started at Figures Toy Company were some collections that my boss had bought off people through the years. And he had that El Gigante and yeah. I had seen the uh, the Big Josh and the Dustin Rhodes and the Freebirds. Um, so, yeah, I had seen a lot of those releases. But I actually still have the Brian Pillman from that set, uh, Minton Card. Wow. Because he's my, he's my favorite of all time. And when I started at Figures Toy Company, we still had um, older figures like Hasbro's and Galoob's being sold through the catalog. And one of the first things that I grabbed when I started there was a Minton Card Brian Pillman that I still have. Wow. So the the last question before we get to your job that I have is now the UFC and boxing never really branched off into a, a, a children's audience necessarily with the figures and, and just with, uh, you know, just just with uh, merchandise and stuff. Now, my guess is, is is boxing is a little tied up politically. You don't really have one company. It's a bunch of promoters, and I would imagine each fighter sort of has an individual license that you need to get a hold of. But also, it is a very adult, you know, over 50 male-dominated sport. So I imagine that's also some of it. But the UFC, it's so, I always thought it made sense to try and market some of these guys as bigger than life but I guess part of that is also rehabbing guys who, who, who would lose. But, you know, I, you know, you, you think of the biggest stars like a GSP. He was very much booked like an MMA superhero, right? Uh, Brock Lesnar, the, the big monster. So there were ways that I thought they could have marketed figures like that. But why do you think that, you know, that that never took off for the UFC? They tried it. Um, Jax, who was the company that made WWE's figures for years up until Mattel took over, when they took over for uh, Impact, they also got the UFC license. So this is around 2010 or so. And they were doing current people and they even went kind of like, you know, into the history because they did like a Dan the Beast Severn and guys like that. Uh, I think at the time, though, um, it's just like you said, like, you know, there is an audience for it. And that audience is probably more the older collector, um, you know, the type of fans that you and I are familiar with or the type of fans that we are. Mm-hmm. But to market them in a Walmart or a Target, I don't think that UFC is really going for that, you know, 12, 13 year old boy. I mean, sure, you get some fans, but, you know, there wasn't any 12 year old looking to get an Evan Tanner figure, you know, like. Maybe the guys like GSP or Tito Ortiz or Chuck Liddell, sure, but they went pretty deep into the lineups, and I think that that was the thing is that maybe they went too fast too soon mm. with you know guys like Evan Tanner and Chet Congo and guys like that, so that when those guys didn't sell, it kind of shot them in the foot. Um, you know, I think that for UFC, things like the Funko Pops are probably the best bet right, because right. They're, they're quirky enough where like the non-toy collectors even look at them. But for the full-fledged action figures, I think it's very select for who you could do. Like if they came out now and did like a Connor figure and, you know, maybe like a Cormier, like, you know, kind of maybe like that core of like five, six guys, um, you know, John Jones, obviously that, yeah, you'll definitely move some, but I can't see them, you know, selling Colby Covington's and, and stuff like that. You know, I just don't see that happening. 
Dana White would uh, would be the 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 most bought figure. Uh, oh, oh, wait, before the one more thing, uh, you mentioned the Mattel. You know what? So who picks up that that WWE license, or do they just kind of have a hold on it? Like, how does that work? So uh, Jax had the WWE license, and then when that expired, they went to Mattel. Um, they're still with Mattel right now. Mattel, I believe, holds the license for like another two years, but usually towards the end of uh, a contract that's when all the other toy companies can kind of start investigating and making bids and making Mm -hmm. their pitches um because you know for instance mattel is losing the dc comics uh six inch license to a company called spin master and spin master is really famous for doing a lot of uh younger children's toy lines like they do like the paw patrol from nickelodeon and Mm -hmm. kind of the stuff that like you know my the stuff that my son watches um so you know mattel basically has to kind of like, you know, fight for it every couple of years or just, you know, decide if WWE renews. Um, but then, you know, uh, for instance, like, you know, with our, you know, our company, which we can go like further into, if we find out a license is, you know, coming due, then we have to open up renegotiations and see if we have any competition there. So right. just like anything, just like, you know, just like making a bid for a, a sports team or anything, you just got to kind of make the sales pitch and try to make the best offer. Do you think AEW can get some get some uh you know they get their foot in the game a little bit based on you know what what we see as as sort of wrestling insiders and and maybe i'm sure that's not sort of how you how you market this thing but uh if they get a little bit of popularity could you see that being something that that they would get into yeah, absolutely. Especially being on TNT and having that more mainstream coverage. You know, you're going to be on a, a full-fledged cable channel. You're not going to be on one of those upper-tier channels that you don't get with every package or anything. And you've already got some guys with name value. I mean, there's a million Cody Rhodes and Chris Jericho figures out there, but I think that in the collector's market, at least, they always want the most updated versions. Um, our company did the Young Bucks a couple of years ago. We did Kenny when he first started doing the cleaner gimmick in New Japan with the trench coat. Um, I've got a Joey Janela figure coming out so there are guys that are on the aew roster that either already exist in that form or who are going to be coming out as far as them obtaining a license i could either see a company making an offer to them or knowing those guys them being proactive about it and coming after someone whether it be a mattel or a hasbro or someone on a smaller scale like us who they've got a history with so let's talk about what you do for your company. You, uh, I see a lot of stuff where you're posting press releases about someone that you've signed and, and you're posting models of, of uh, work that's been done on a figure. So being the chief marketing officer, you obviously your relationship with some of these guys or the relationships that you create with, with these guys is pretty valuable. But how, how, do you, how did you get into this whole thing? And, and, and also, um, you know, it's it's a i'm assuming that a lot of what you do is wrestling but is there are there other parts uh, of the job that that are not wrestling oh yeah i mean we have a lot of other licenses but how i got the job was actually not only through wrestling but through collecting wrestling figures um figure toy company used to advertise in the after mags there's usually like a two or three page ad and my buddy wanted to order a, a hasbro figure it was actually a hasbro yokozuna figure and the P.O. box was in the town of Johnston, Rhode Island, which is the town that I grew up in, and he lived the town over. So he gave them a call, and he said, you've got a P.O. box over here. He's like, but I live 
10 minutes from where that post office is, is you have like a, a warehouse or a store. And as it turned out, the warehouse was five minutes from his house. <laughs> so we took a ride down there. And, you know, it was very much like a speakeasy, like ring the buzzer, we'll let you in. Yeah. Like it wasn't a storefront. There was no advertising or anything. But we walked in and there were a couple of old WCW VHS tapes strewn about. And what I found out later on was they were taking pictures for the new catalog of the new products that were coming in. But, uh, you know, you and I talk all the time about pop culture and stuff. You know how I'm wired about remembering things. Yep. And just, you know, kind of start rattling off to my buddy. I'm like, oh, check it out, dude. Beach Blast 92 when Steamboat and Rude had that Iron Man match. And the guy who would become my boss turned around from his desk and he's like, how the hell do you know that? He's like, you didn't pick that tape up. You didn't. He's like, you knew that right off the top of your head. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just a fan. Like that, that's how I am. I kind of memorize a lot of these things. And at the time, it was a very tight knit operation. It was a lot of family, you know, guys he grew up with, people that he had known for years and years. And he said, listen, he's like, I follow wrestling. He's like, but I'm pretty much like a casual observer. He's like, I know enough business wise, but I don't really know how to kind of get to the core of it all. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you know a lot about it leave me your information and you know if i can use you i'll give you a call two weeks later it was the night before my 19th birthday he gives me a call says can you come down and talk to me tomorrow and it was my 19th birthday december 16th 1999 i got hired on a handshake deal to just kind of be a a jack of all trades and here i am 20 years later as the chief marketing officer running all the social media uh pretty much in charge of the wrestling toy line so that's the ring of honor license the Rising Stars line, which focuses on the top current indie talent, and the Legends line, which takes the names from the past and turns them into action figures. And besides that, I've got some input in our other licenses, but my boss handles a lot of that stuff himself. But we have a license with Warner Brothers to do DC Comics characters and Hanna-Barbera characters in that retro, almost Mego-ish type of style. We've worked with uh, the family of the Three Stooges, who maintained the rights to their likenesses and their estate. We've done the monkeys. We work with Kiss, and working with Kiss means you work with them directly. So all the mm-hmm. approval comes from Simmons and Paul Stanley. So, yeah, we're we're pretty out there as far as the var- variety of licenses that we've gotten and the ones that we've gotten to do. So you mentioned the ROH license, and then you know the indie talent. I, I would imagine with the way that WWE's done business for the last several years, where they try and scoop up everybody, it, it probably made it hard to to figure out you know, who you guys can get. But with someone like an ROH, um, you know, you know, they have television in many, many markets because of their deal with, or the, you know, the relationship with Sinclair. But it's not like they have that, you know, that worldwide spectrum that WWE has. Like when you're when you're marketing an ROH line where you know that, okay, they don't even run shows on the West Coast. Like how do you decide you know, where, where the figures are going to be and, and where to market them and who to market the hardest, like, like what goes into that, uh, the mindset of that as part of your job? I mean, the thing with ROH is that, so the way the license works as far as ROH, and this is the same for, you know, WWE with Mattel or any other type of company is that anyone who's under an exclusive ROH contract, anyone who's not like a part-timer is basically, you know, we have carte blanche to add them to the line. So we've got the new line coming out. Um, I've already posted sneak previews of Marty Skrull, uh, PCO, Brody King. So like, you know, for instance, Marty Skrull, a lot of people kind of see, you know, is he going to be going to AEW? Is he mm-hmm. going to go to WWE? Is he going to stay in ROH? So even if he leaves, that figure's already entered production. That figure can come out 
So even though it will be under the ROH brand, you know, that's not going to stop a collector from getting a Marty Skrull figure. Sure. So the marketing can be tricky because some of these guys are signing these contracts that only last for a year or so, which is pretty much the same for production. That's why if you go to Target or Walmart and you go to the toy aisle and see a WWE guy, they're in a costume from like last year's SummerSlam or last year's WrestleMania. Right. Because even a company like Mattel, it takes them about a year to do that. So the marketing can get tricky because you're trying to market them as ROH figures, but then if that guy's already jumped ship, you don't want to tag WWE when you're promoting the Ring of Honor brand. <laughs> so, you know, you just kind of have to, you know, push the individual at that point. Um, but I mean, as far as pushing ROH as a whole, I do it all over our social media. You know, we sell all the figures exclusively online. Um, I have a variety of wholesalers worldwide. I've had UK distributors, Canadian distributors, people out on the West Coast, you know, people in Middle America, people here on the East Coast. So I'm always pushing not only the product for ourselves, but for people to get them in their comic book shops or their right. collector stores or their sporting goods stores so that people that might not be as familiar with the talent, that might just be collectors and might just want to see something cool, can actually see them. Um, and that's why I'll do things like podcasts and interviews and stuff like that because you know they always say the more publicity, the better. And I, I definitely believe that, especially with something that can be considered kind of a niche product like ROH, even though they've come a long way from 2002 – and they've got you know things like the arrangement with New Japan and working with CMLL. Like you said, they're still a very devout hardcore wrestling fan base that doesn't know much about them, let alone about some of the guys that they've got under contract. So it's really all about you know the visual aspect of it too. When those sculpts and those designs come in, letting people see this is what this figure is going to look like. Or any time that I mention that we've got a figure in stock, always putting it. Uh, a picture of it out of the package, in the package, so people know exactly what they're getting and kind of get the full detail of what these ROH figures are like. Would someone like a Juice Robinson qualify for a Rising Stars, or because he is with New Japan, that sort of excludes him from you guys being able to work with, with him, or anybody sort of in that that same department? Nope, I've actually got Juice coming in the Rising Stars line, um, thanks to our mutual buddy Jeff Cobb. Um, because Jeff, uh, you know, we did Jeff in the rising stars line and that is one guy I have to say it. And I'm not saying it just to blow smoke up anybody's, but one of the absolute nicest guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, let alone working with. He's been super cool from day one. And what I really appreciate about it is that he was so appreciative to be in our line that he kind of, you know, gives me a little bit of credibility in that, you know, inner circle of the wrestling world and not only me, but the brand itself. And he hit me up. Um, at the uh, CEO show last year because he was on that show. And he's like, hey, he's like, I got a couple of guys here that are really interested in the action figures. Like, do you want to talk to a couple of them? And I'm like, yeah, sure, who you got? And it was Juice Robinson, David Finley, and Chase Owens. And he helped me get those guys based on how happy he was with his figure. And those guys were able to do it because even though they're working with New Japan, um, I guess, you know, before we got to that era of everybody getting tied up in exclusive contracts again, they were basically only contracted per tour. So merchandise wise and rights wise and likeness wise, they had the ability to control their own destiny as far as merchandising and signed up to do the action figures with us. Oh, so all those guys are coming in the rising stars. Yeah, that, that's very, really cool. So who's coming soon? And, uh, you know, any 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 figures that you're super excited about because you've seen the molds or you've seen some of the, the you know the the thought process going behind it out uh, coming up soon 
Yeah, I mean, you know, from Ring of Honor, we've got all three guys from Villain Enterprises. I've posted those likenesses. We've got Bandito and Mark Haskins coming, and I think that Bandito figure is going to look killer. Um, I've only posted the sculpts for those guys, but I've seen um, the design aspect as far as what the outfit and the color schemes are going to look like, and I'll get those up soon. But just, you know, they're things that are really going to pop. They're really going to stand out. Um, I've seen a lot more of the ROH roster. Um, I've seen some of the Women of Honor, which will be the first time we've done any of them. But I've seen Mandy Leone, Kelly Klein, and uh, Angelina Love and Velvet Sky. So those four women, those will actually probably be the next ones that we show over the next couple of weeks. Um, but I know a lot of fans have always been asking you know, where the Women of Honor were. So we wanted to make sure that we included them in this go-around. Uh, we're doing updates to the Briscoes and Jay Lethal. Those three were some of our original releases. And now we're doing the update to Jay Lethal with the bald head. The Briscoes, obviously, their likenesses change depending on how much they grow their beard and their hair out. So we're doing like a more modern aspect look of the Briscoes. Just you know, really, really cool updates um, from the Rising Stars line. A lot of guys that are doing big things. You know, we've got Joey Janela coming out, and he's in AEW, and you know, I have no doubt that he'll be a national name sooner than later. Uh, Shane Strickland is now in WWE in NXT as Isaiah Scott. So if he gains popularity on NXT or 205 Live or wherever they want to stick him, then that's good for us because even though he'll be marketed and pitched as the Shane Strickland figure, if a guy gains momentum in the most visible promotion in the world right now, that can only mean good things for us, especially if you're someone who's collecting those Mattel figures and you see this guy and you're like, well, when's he coming out? Oh, wait, this company already has him. Boom. Let me jump on that. And then it steers people towards us. So lots of stuff I'm really looking forward to uh, as far as the indie talent and the new talent. And then the Legends line, I mean, probably the most humbling thing was getting in touch with Chris Candido's brother. And him giving us the rights to Chris's estate and his likeness to do the first Chris Candido figure in 20 years since wow. the days of him being in ECW. So I'm really looking forward to that one because that'll be the first time he was done in any modern capacity. So I'm gonna have we're gonna have to figure out how to um, talk about uh, the Beverly Hills 90210 show that's coming out and try and figure out how to relate it to wrestling, maybe through Jungle Boy somehow. I don't know, but at some point. You know, we'll have to chit chat again. But before I let you go, what is your ultimate sort of holy grail collectible that you do not have yet? That I do not have yet. Oof, that is a loaded question. You know, I, I wish I still had a lot of my He Man guys mint on card. That's for sure. Um, you know, some of those pieces, you know, obviously through age and stuff, kind of fell apart and everything like that. So I just wish that I had some of those original play sets and stuff like that still, you know, mint, still displayable and everything because, I mean, that was my favorite thing to collect besides wrestling stuff growing up. I mean, the Incredible Hulk stuff was, like I said, it was a sentimental thing and you know, my family was always on the lookout for it. But the one thing that always made me excited besides wrestling figures was that Masters of the Universe line. And especially now with the movie coming out next year and it kind of being brought to the forefront again. You know, the collector's edition figures that they make now, it, they're just super expensive and you got to worry about which one's an exclusive and how to get your hands on this one. So I kind of just pick and choose them. But it would be really cool to kind of have that full collection again, um, you know, someday, you know, when I hit the lottery. All right. So where can folks find you and also the uh, social media and all that stuff for the company uh, as, as they, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff? 
Yep. Uh, Figures Toy Company. Uh, the official website is www.figurestoycompany.com. We also own and operate WrestlingSuperstore.com. So that's a subsidiary where you can find a little bit more variety of wrestling merchandise, T-shirts, action figure accessories, uh, replica belts, DVDs, stuff like that. Uh, both pages are across all forms of social media. So if you search Figures Toy Company or Wrestling Superstore on Facebook and Instagram, the company pages will come up for you. Uh, they're both on Twitter, at Figures Toy Co., and at W-R-E-S underscore Superstore. And if you want to seek me out personally, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Zach Malibu. That's Z-A-C-K-M-A-L-I-B-U. All right, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me, dude. Okay. All right. So now we're back to finish off the show to talk about Monday Night Raw from 1993. Um, what are we at? What episode 26, 27? I, I the WWE I, network like did it went through a revision and no longer does it tell me the number of the episode, it only tells me the date. So I can't, I, I, I think we're at 27, but I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah, I, I forget. Um, what do you think about this new network revision? I think it's slick, but a lot of people are saying that they can't do things that they've previously been able to do. Like they can't uh, cast from their, uh, maybe it's the Chromecast or, you know, whatever, maybe their computer to a TV, like the, mm. some functionality isn't working correctly. Some it's slick, but I'm like, where's my hidden gems, bro? Mm-hmm. Like, where's my, I, I love that little, that little profile, that little folder. Mm-hmm. Like, where is it? The, the thing the thing that I do like about it is like they have like what's new because they would always announce stuff that's new and then I'd have to kind of search for it but I like mm-hmm. the fact that you know they have a okay here's what we just released so check it out yeah. I like that part but you know yeah I mean I think it's pretty slick it's not too different um I just you know you just want the functionality to be the same and if that's not the case then that's super frustrating for people. I mean I don't know if I'm looking at it right like for example like I've already like watched this raw like like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. So it like lets me know that you already watched it. So when I turned on the to watch this raw it was like start at the end. Mm. So I had to rewind like there's no like once you click on to watch it there's no like do you want to resume or do you yeah, want to yeah, yeah, start yeah, from yeah. the beginning? So I just had to like, you know, push pause and rewind basically. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of frustrating. So this show starts and it is a, it is the second taping uh, of the show that we talked about last week. Cause uh, my buddy Robert Silva was there and he gave his, you know, his memories of his live recap. And I'll give that at the end here too. Um, so it's a second, second taping. Uh, and so, you know, they, they are, it's funny because Bobby Heenan takes a phone call in the first match and he's like, oh yeah, it's Jerry Lawler. He's talking about coming to the show and, and showing up. And it's like, dude, like you guys just the same taping from last week. But, um, you know, you, you got to do that stuff. Um, so the show starts with Doink the Clown going at the Macho Man. And I started to think, I was like, why does he care? And then Doink told us why he cared, because the Macho Man interfered in his business. And in pro wrestling vernacular, or in pro wrestling, just, you know, in in the way that it works, that is one thing that very much irritates the heel, is when you interfere in him trying to beat up somebody else. So um, so Doink goes at the Macho Man, uh, 
uh, to to start the show with us with a short promo. Macho Man reacts. He calls him the Macho Boy, and that will lead into the end of the show, where Doink actually comes out to confront Savage and to lead to a match next week. So, yeah, I, love, yeah, I love everything about this this stuff. I love the the promo. I love the ending stuff with them, and it got me excited because you know what. Fucking Macho Man Randy Savage, man. I want to see that guy wrestle, mm-hmm. right? So, like, any kind of program him, it, it's it's a good thing. And that's why I got pumped up. I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, knowing how good a wrestler, you know, Matt Bourne is and he's how great he is in his character. Like, I'm really looking forward to their match. Yep. Uh, Bam Bam and Bret Hart lead off the show. First match. It is a long-ish match. And it, it's actually really good until uh, until they kind of turned it into an angle. Um, so Stu and Helen Hart are there and they're sitting in the balcony and there's no reason for them to be there. So immediately, you know, that's just, that's just an angle alert, right? Like you're just like, Oh, Mm -hmm. they're there. Something's going to happen. Jerry Lawler shows up in the balcony with a microphone as this match is going on. Um, Heenan. (laughs) Oh my God. He was ripping on the poor hearts. He asks Vince, he's like, Hey, uh, do you know the hearts very well? Vince is like, yeah, sure. He's like, okay, which one is Stu? I I died. <laughs> as mean yeah. as that was, I died. And Lawler was, yeah, as, as, as he was hitting home runs with this segment, Lawler's hitting home runs as well. And there's also there's a moment where Bam Bam, or Brett's trying to get over the guardrail to help his parents out, right? To get at Lawler. But Batman cuts him off, continues to beat down, and there's like the angle is shooting towards Vince and Macho and Hina, and Vince is dying. Like he, his head's down, and he's like, he's talking, and he's he's such a, such a pro, but like mm-hmm. he is cracking up by all of Lawler's one-liners and antics, it's insults. All, it's it all is. Vince humor too. Oh, one hundred percent. So uh, Brett. Um... As he is wont to do, and it's kind of it's kind of funny because you have this kind of comparison. Like people want to compare, you know, today's wrestling to yesteryear, and like one of the comparisons that people will make is Tanahashi and Bret Hart. And uh, you know, I was talking about how Tanahashi he's always got the bad wheel, and then he does that high fly flow to the outside, and he always makes it look like he bangs his knee so that he can mm-hmm. start selling the knee. So in this match. Brett does like this weird, like, th- I don't know, it's like a Thez press off the top rope or something. And he bangs his knee. And so that becomes the story of the match is that he's got to sell this knee and Bam Bam's taking advantage of this knee. Um, I think what happened was actually it was a, a, on a fly um, audible because I think what he's going for was a Thez press. Bam Bam catches him, maybe slams him into the corner. Mm hmm. But I think he just, you know, since they went, bam, bam, you know, something happened to the timing, didn't catch him, they fell, Brett wants to sell a knee, and then and then bam, bam, worked on the knee. And if you notice after that, bam, bam, continues to work on the back. So I think the focus was going to be the back, but short term, he went in the knee, then he worked on the back. So, you know, they had, a, like, some rough moments, yep. you know, but they also had a good, it was, like, rough and good, like, bam, bam, throws that drop kick in the corner, but he's, like, short. Right, and Brett wasn't 
close. It was kind of the, but then he makes up with it later. Those are hitting it good, you know, later mm-hmm. on in the match. So it was like a, a, a mixed bag. But overall, I thought it was a really good match. You know, those, those guys are awesome. And you know, even the best have bad days, which I was trying to teach my daughter that when we're playing cat. She'd get frustrated. <laughs> like, like, she would get frustrated not making a catch. I'm, I'm watching the Giants game. I'm like, look, babes, he missed the ball too. He's, a, he's getting paid a lot of money for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when Lawler shows up at the balcony, the back and forth with Stu and Helen trying to speak was really bad. It was almost embarrassingly bad. And Lawler's trying to make up for it, right? He's he's trying to, you know, make some sense out of it. But, Stu, it's like, at some point, I think Stu ca- called him gay or something. <laughs> like, he was, like, Stu was a little out of his mind. Helen was kind of not there. Stu's mumbling half of the time. Uh, but, you know, Lawler comes off as the bully. He's bullying Brett's parents. The two things that bothered me about this just, you know, and they didn't really explain it. You know, Macho Man saves Crush from Yokozuna the week before uh, or a couple weeks before because, you know, Crush is about to get killed by Yokozuna. And Savage kind of cares, but he doesn't really care that Lawler is like bullying these old people and then brett's in the ring and like you said you know brett tries to tries to go out there but then bam bam cuts him off and there are ample opportunities for brett to just like stomp bigelow and then run out but he then goes through all of his movesets before he does that which i thought was kind of interesting um and then you know brett does finally jump over the over the barricade and then he, he goes to the balcony and by the time he he's up there uh, Jerry Lawler's already gone, and he's got to hug his mom and shake his dad's hand, and uh, it just, it, it was, I think it was a sort of a, a good idea, but I don't think Stu and Helen necessarily, uh, by speaking, uh, made it better, and also, it was a little too long, like, the second Lawler was cutting these jokes, like, I think Brett should have just raced up there, and, you know, because it took him so long to get up there as it was, mm-hmm. and... Well, he, uh, well I, what I liked about that, and I had that same thought, but what I liked what they did is that when he did jump out, did try to jump the guardrail to get over there, like, bam, I cut him off and continued the match, I mm-hmm, thought, and then mm-hmm. he went to that long heat spot, so I thought that was good, so I thought they, they tried to make sense of it, like, Brett, you know, Brett would just sit there and let his parents be verbally abused, so now... He goes out there. He gets attacked. He gets picked, beat up. Now he's now now as now he wants to beat up this guy. He's trying to beat him up and finish this guy off. So he goes over to save his parents. But you know, God, standing ovation for Jerry Lawler, man, keeping this whole segment <laughs> together. But that's why he's one of the greatest talkers of yeah, all time. Like, yeah. If not, you know, he's definitely top ten, if not top five. I mean, he was just a modern day Roddy Piper at this point, right? Yeah. Like, he's yep. definitely in that role. Now I'm thinking, like, man. Lawler, they, they didn't do. I still don't think they did enough with him as a, a top heel. Yep. Like I don't know if Vince saw him as that top heel, but sure enough, he had that 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 here. I thought it was great, and he was definitely saving these segments with you know, every time he talked to Steve. Let's do that, 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 that. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> I know, so bad. And then Helen said, she said something, and it was like, and like he just had to save it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. I. I never. I. I'll never forget this segment. This is one. This is another segment. I always like. If you think if you talk ninety three raw, this mm-hmm. is definitely one I always remember. So the SummerSlam report makes it official. 
It is Lex Luger versus Yokozuna. Jack Tunney, the president, said that the match is on, but Lex has to wear that special arm pad that protects the elbow, uh, even though we know it's just a little sleeve and it protects nothing. But uh, but that's the stipulation for the match. Uh, and then they announced uh, Giant Gonzalez and uh, uh, Undertaker again. So uh, he, Mr. Hughes has a match on this show, so he's not gone. Um, and I'm watching this match with Mr. Hughes and Ross Greenberg, and I'm like, why is he wrestling Giant Gonzalez again? Because I want to see him face Mr. Hughes. This is the same TV taping last week's, right? Yeah. Together. They tape shows together. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe between then, that first taping, something happened, and they're like, they stay on Mr. Hughes, which is a bummer because I think they definitely could have had a better match than Giant Gonzalez did with Undertaker on that show. Yeah, I thought Hughes looked really good in the squash match. Uh, Ross Greenberg, you know. Did you notice they tried to paint the white flowers black? I didn't. I didn't notice that. Yeah, they're like these black, the black flowers. I'm like, they look pretty damn white to me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice there's like some shirtless dude in the front row? Mm, I did not notice him. He was kind of, he was kind of put together too. He was kind of buffed out. He was trying to get a job. Like, look, look at me. I can get in there and do things. He, he may have been wearing suspenders or something. I don't know, but he was definitely shirtless. Yeah, but shout out to my boy. I don't know his name. We're in the crisscross colors. Now. <laughs> 1993. So, I never had any crisscross colors, honestly. No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't. I think the closest I came to anything resembling that color, I had like a mustard yellow shirt that I would wear every once in a while, but I could not put together the whole ensemble. Now, my, my buddy I grew up with a uh, long time, long time friend, Chad Ng. He was always hip, man. He always had things first. He was like the, you know, I was like, man, he always, he's always, he had the Z cab reaches first, right? Mm-hmm. And then he was always on the trends. And he came in, I remember he had the crisscrosses, the reds, the the greens, everything, man. I was more of the starter. I had the starter. Yep, yep. That first. was more me too. Yeah, yeah. It was just when I saw a crisscross kid out there, I'm like, hell yeah, bro, rock that crisscross. So just smack dab in the middle of the show. Vince announces that the WrestleMania, the album, is going to be at Kmart's everywhere. He said that it sold 100,000 copies in the UK. And so I was like, God, he's got to be bullshitting. And I'm not exactly sure the number, but it was actually the number four album in the UK, WrestleMania the album made it to number four on the charts. Are you shocked by this? I'm shocked because this album sucked. Well, you know, David Hasselhoff's a hit superstar out there. Can't expect Jim Duggan's beautiful voice to be a big hit. <laughs> okay, now here's a bit of trivia. Uh-oh. And I know our boy Nick Ma- Nick McMood will will know this, so I'm He's not even, I'm not even gonna say that he will not know this. At least Nick will know this. But do you know who the executive producer on this album was? What's his name? I'm gonna say Quincy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good guess. Um, none other than Simon Cowell. Wow. 
That's big. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. I'm sure that is not on Simon Cowell's resume on LinkedIn. If you look at his LinkedIn page, it's like American Idol, Pop Idol, X Factor, X Factor UK, X Factor US. You're not going to see WrestleMania the album. By the way, did you ever have any of the old uh, WWE albums from back in the day, like uh, no. the originally wrestling album or Pile Driver? No, no, I did not. I had both of them. I, I played those things until they were like done. I, th- I think I- the first album I got was the one CD that came out, or album that came out with the uh, Jeff Jarrett with My Baby Tonight. Oh, really? First. Yeah. So um, I think I still have the wrestling album on vinyl. I got I have it somewhere. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Smoking Guns versus Dwayne Gill and Glenn Ruth. They didn't even announce Dwayne Gill and Glenn Ruth because the Smoking Guns popped off their pistols and everyone got scared. And then I think it was the Fink just ran out of the ring. Yeah, this is a long, long <laughs> squash match. But yeah, it's there for a reason because they're talking about everything else but the match. Yeah, yeah. So I watched this match and I'm looking at Billy Gunn. And I'm like, in 2019, this dude is twice as jacked as he was in 2000, in 1993. Well, he didn't hit his growth spurt yet. He's a oh, young my kid God. <laughs> he looks like a normal human being in this match. And, you know, you see him in 2019, and he looks like this, like, jacked-out 50-year-old dude. It's crazy. And I'm watching this match, and I'm like, man, you know, the guns are pretty fun to watch. Yep. You know, they had a lot of cool double-team moves and... You know, unfortunately for them, he like, puts them over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the only thing I felt bad because they, they had to go long because they had to like Vince is promoting, whatnot, and and so I think they kind of kept running out of like <laughs> stuff to do. They're like, I'm gonna drop the knee here, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. uh, here's a leg drop for good measure. <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny. And uh, there's a there's a segment on Ludwig Borga, which it, I'm assuming takes like some superstars footage. Mm-hmm. He is not impressive. Um, what he what they showed was like, uh, I I'm not sure I would have put that stuff on TV. I maybe would have just introduced him to do a match and just been like a really mean nasty guy. But that did nothing for me. I like the video. I like Ludwig. I was always, I was pretty excited when he came in. Uh, I remember because I would see him in the magazines for uh, on the PWI and mm-hmm. stuff. Pictures of Tony with Hale in, in Japan, and he just looked like a killer. So I was pretty, I was pretty excited when they when they signed him. I, just, I, I wanted, I wanted to see him wrestle. I just didn't. I never seen on his picture, so I thought the costume was really goofy. I thought he was like really mechanical. Rather than be this uh, really nasty guy, I just thought he looked really clumsy and like not very impressive at all. And then we just get over this whole thing of Vince going nuts on this Japanese Yokozuna and it's all Americana this and Americana that and Lex and the call to action. And as Vince's outro to Ludwig Borga to throw to an interview he did to Lex, with Lex, who is the American guy, he just goes something like, yeah, I don't think Ludwig Borga likes America that much. Or he says something like that and just like, like a throwaway line. And I'm like, dude, like we are full-blown Lex Express, and you're just going to toss that line out there as if like he's not, in, you know, that this is not what we've just been watching you berate poor Yokozuna about the whole time? I think he's setting up a tease that that's going to be Luger's 
personally feuding with I either guess. after he wins the title, which he didn't, um, or or just you know. But yeah, it's listen. listen Ludwig thing was not in the ring, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you watch those old those matches in New Japan, they're 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 they can be very rough, and then sometimes it depends who he's with. They could be really good. Like I remember he had a really good match with Scott Norton, who's one of the, who's really 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 underrated, unappreciated big man in wrestling. Um, uh, you know he and you know Luger's. <laughs> Luger can be really good. Luger can be really bad, but Luger's never really been the leader, so I'm sure those matches are pretty rough. But uh, you know, it's all about the look and intimidation. I think, you know, Ludwig has that classic villain face. You know, yeah, he, you know, he looked he looked intimidating to me. You know, I thought they did a decent job with that video. Like I said, his uh, Luger Luger then does an interview with Vince, and I th- I thought it kind of sucked. Like I think they were expecting Luger to come across as like very uh human like very personable he was a little stiff uh you know the thing is is when you when you put him in this spot the immediate comparison it is to hogan right like you're just like okay how would hogan do this interview and hogan is so so much uh so much more charming than lex is so i thought the interview was a little bit rough um you know, Vince did not do his normal job of like getting the guy over like crazy. So that was, you know, Vince was kind of in a, in a bad spot of trying to, you know, pull something out of this guy. And he was just like, you know, he was fine, but he wasn't the guy where you're like, that's the guy I want to be the champion. And I can't wait for that guy to be the champion. I think it was, a, it was a good interview with the best, um, Luger definitely looked uncomfortable at times. He looked yeah. like, yeah. I mean, he's he's looking around a lot, not keeping a lot of eye contact uh, with the camera, um, and you know he he didn't really connect that well. But I thought it was kind of cool, like he was kind of natural in some in some parts, but he'd get nervous or uncomfortable. Um, I, th- I feel like we're going to get more of these segments coming up or mm-hmm. more interviews because they kept teasing that we're going to find the the wrestling fans are going to know the real Lex Luger. So we'll see how they if they improve. But um, it's definitely different than the fiery Hope Hogan promo, right? Yeah. But even like there were promos that Hogan would do where, you know, it would just be Vince and Hogan. And Hogan wasn't really cutting a promo on anybody. It was like Vince just like, let's mm-hmm. give them the real you know, as close to Terry Bollet as we can. And Hogan would be really charming and, you know, really likes, you know, he, he wasn't the, the cartoon character that he was. But, you know, Lex tried to do that, and I, and I get what they were doing, but I just didn't see it as uh, as all that all that impressive as far as, like, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people behind him. And, you know, this Lex Express thing, and they're spending a lot of money, and they're getting Lex, you know, um they're they're trying to get behind him and he's just not he's not really built for it uh and i don't think you know if you ask him he probably felt like you know this is not really me so i'm like kind of playing a character and and uh that's not you know when you're necessarily going to do the kind of job that you know that 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 you wanted him to do like he's got to be that guy and he's got to buy in completely yeah, the big mistake is the whole Lex Express thing. It just they should have had something where they kind of did it later in the year. They had, I mean, especially in the Royal Rumble, the, the in '94 Rumble, where Fuji has these assassins that are gonna 
make sure Luger doesn't win the Rumble. So he had the great Kabuki and Tenru, which, you know, only Vince knows these older guys, you know. You know, Tenru can still go, just Kabuki's older, but that's the guys he knows, right? I mean, um, I think they could have done something like that earlier, early on, like leading into the SummerSlam match. That's like, you know, Fuji wants to stop, uh, you know, Luger. So he's sending these assassins from Japan and, you know, one by one, you know, Luger's knocking him down and, and, you know, you know, to get that title shot. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the last segment is doink against Phil Apollo hits that fantastic butt splash that, you know, I love that move, um, Mm -hmm. which sets up him coming out of the ring getting face-to-face with Savage, calling Savage out, wants to set up a match. And then, you know, three doinks pop out. And it's kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? And everyone kind of gets freaked out. But it does lead to a match next week between Savage and Doink. And Doink is great. Like, you know, I, I sort of compare him to... The you know Bray Bray Wyatt's character where mm-hmm. there's a little bit of mystery, the actual presentation is fantastic, you know as Bray is 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 great with his character work like you know Doink is fantastic like everything is so genuine like he's such he is so Doink you know Born is so Doink and I, I think the whole thing has been really good so far. Yeah, he's she's awesome. And did you notice Linda McMahon behind Vince? I didn't I didn't see her. Yeah. She was she's front row, looked like with some executives and enjoying she was enjoying the antics of <laughs> she couldn't stop laughing. Uh but yeah, great segment, good 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 things. Like I said, good to see Macho get back into the thick of things in the match. I'm looking forward to that. Uh yeah. And I, I like this cool way to end the show, kinda of bookend it, which is nice with the promo in the beginning and and the closing segment with Macho was great. And so our buddy Robert, he sent me a text and he said, the second part of the raw taping was not as good as the first hour. The Hart Bigelow match was tremendous until Lawler showed up and went into the crowd to berate Stu and Helen. It was forced comedy on his behalf that did nothing but cause dead air throughout the Manhattan Center. It also killed the momentum as Bigelow and Hart stopped to look at Lawler in the crowd. Just a wasted segment that killed what was turning into a great match. The rest of the show is very uneventful. The whoop, there it is chance stopped as well as the action inside the ring. Mr. Hughes' match was blah and the Doink Savage confrontation had no heat in the building. To top it off, the dark match between Razor and Hughes was basically a squash match with Ramon going over. This should have been televised to accentuate Ramon's face turn. Although the second hour was not as good as the first hour, I had a great time attending Monday Night Raw. Unfortunately, I never attended another Raw at the Manhattan Center as the WWF had stopped taping regularly or stopped sorry stopped running there regularly after this taping so thanks to robert for his input there and uh that's uh that's raw and so just a couple of tidbits from the observer uh savage moving from florida supposedly to connecticut to work on the booking side Hmm. i don't remember that i don't remember either i wonder what he booked interesting to know Coming soon 
the Heavenly Bodies. Yes. And Jim Cornette to face the Steiners. Uh, Fatu of the Head Shrinkers has a leg infection, so they needed a replacement team. Um, Cornette, like you've been talking about for the last few weeks, slides in to work with Yokozuna to do all of his promo work. Um, and on the flip side, WWE guys are, are going to work uh, with uh, in Smoky Mountain. And um, the uh, some of it is that WWE at this point is pulling back on the number of shows that they're doing. So they're often not running two tours at the same time. And so they're signing tons of guys, but they don't have a lot of shows. So this will allow them to put some of those guys on uh, on Smoky Mountain shows. Um, and Dave also writes that, and this is something that I think we talked about on one of the We Want Flair shows, which is uh, in 1992, when Heenan comes off the road as Flair's manager, Mr. Perfect wasn't the first choice. It was actually Jim Cornette. And then the last tidbit that I thought was actually kind of interesting, and you'll probably find this funny, is uh, of all people to come in for a tryout, none other than Van Hammer. Yes. <laughs> I'm guessing it didn't go well for him. Uh, I don't think it went very well either. He put somebody over. I, I don't remember who he put over, though. I'm surprised. I'm surprised he didn't get a job, honestly. I know. I mean, if you're signing Ludwig Borga. You know, he's not, he's, he's no, you know, he's no beautiful Bobby Eaton. Yeah, exactly. You know, so like, why wouldn't you sign a Van Hammer unless you rub people the wrong way, you know? All right, before we check out of here, anything you want to bring up? We are going to be gone for a couple weeks. Uh, no, I got kind of circle back to that Doink segment, uh, you know, because you, you and I are both texting each other like, man, we got to get this in. We got to watch the show before we talk about it on Wednesday night. And so the you know, last night I was able to watch like 30 minutes of this Raw. Now it's like out. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, okay, I don't want to fall asleep. I want to watch this. So I was, you know, today at work, I couldn't get a chance to watch it on my lunch break. And I was like, kind of stressing. So, like, you know, Hunter's in bed. So I'm like, okay, I'm throwing the last 30 minutes. And, you know, Chloe's, she's playing around. She's not even paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, shoot, Doink's wrestling. And I'm a little wondering, like, how's she going to take if she If she sees the one, what she's going to say. And she was not watching. She's just too busy playing her toys. Yeah. She looked fine, but she does finally look up and sees Doink. She goes, Daddy, that's a scary clown. And I go, yeah, he's pretty scary, huh? And she's like, yeah, he's scary. But then she goes back to play. I'm like, oh, whew. Thank God. Like, she wasn't really that affected by it. But she did recognize, <laughs> like, he's an evil clown, though, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what he is. That's, that's pretty cool. That's exactly what he is. Um. So, yeah. So, uh, we, like I said... You know, unfortunately, um, I, I have to. I have to. Not that I have to, but I plan to be on uh, on vacation, so I'm going to be out for next week. But you know, uh, me us being away for a week means that there's going to be so much to talk about when we come back. So hopefully, we can, uh, you know, we can figure out a, a plan of attack. And you know, I, I, getting behind one week with Raw, not a huge deal, but you know, it's possible we could. Yeah, we can try and and do a couple shows in one week just to catch up, or you know, just like I said, we're gonna catch up anyways when SummerSlam is gonna be on a Monday, and uh, and, and they won't show Raw on the same night, so we generally catch up then. But I wouldn't we'll, mind doing two shows. Yeah, well, we take two shows or something like that. Yeah, yeah maybe we do that. Focus on two episodes of Raw or something like that. You know, have fun with it. 
Yeah, totally. So I'm down for whatever, uh, and I know you're down. Uh, but you know, I don't like to miss a week, but it's just gonna happen. But we'll catch up. We'll make up. We'll make it up. And uh, yeah, so that is it for uh, this week. Hope you liked the interview with Chris. I know we talked a lot about the things going on today. Uh, the G1 has definitely been a little bit harder than usual for me to keep up with, but I'm happy to uh, be able to do it. And I know that you, you've been able to do it. So it's been great to kind of ping you and go, okay, where are you at? Like, what have you seen? And, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm up to date. And I'm like, damn it. I have like seven matches to catch up to, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it'll be fun. And the, the hard part for me will be trying to figure out how to watch it while I'm on vacation too. So, um, but anyway, so for John, I am double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.